Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board games. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode 99. It's a dream come true. Hey, welcome everybody. Uh, episode 99, getting really close to the 100. We've made no plans for the big 100 party, to be honest. Um, so there might not be a big party. But this is Albert, and Julius is here. Wait a second, Julius. are you actually expecting us to make plans more than two weeks in advance? <laughs> no, not really. We still have two weeks <laughs> to make plans ta- for the big 100 party. Oh, yeah, it- it'll work out. We- you know, But we've been talking about it a lot, so... So maybe people are, people are expecting something. <laughs> you're saying if you're listening to this and you have any ideas, let us know. You're saying please. that people might be expecting <laughs> us to have plans already more than two weeks in advance. Yeah, maybe, or maybe just some sort of vague notion of what's going to happen. We're we're gonna have a podcast. <laughs> we're gonna have a podcast. So yeah, so this uh, this episode's gonna be interesting as always. We're talking about a a game about dreams again. Um, what is this game called? Dream Project, Project Dreamscape. Dreamscape. Now I have not had a chance to play it, but I know it was play tested on the One Player Guild, and then it was released through Kickstarter. Um, so I've been looking forward to hearing about this because I didn't get to play it. Julius has played it. Um, other than that, we have some news and a brief discussion about solitaire multiplayer games. Let's go. Sounds about okay. Let's go. Let's jump into the news. I have two pieces of news. Um, first up, and actually, I just realized I didn't know until tonight, but this is a something that's gonna be coming on Kickstarter late March, so towards the end of this month, so maybe right after you hear this podcast. Um, a new game is coming out about the Goonies. It's a Goonies card game. Do you remember the movie The Goonies from the eighties or so? No, I think I'm not quite as uh, old as you, Albert. Oh, okay. It was a Actually, great. I don't even know it was a lot of true. fun. It was a neat adventure. Oh, you're probably not. Uh, I'll tell you what. I'm 49. No, 47. Old <laughs> I'm old enough to forget how old I Much am. Older than that? Me, actually. <laughs> okay. So really, so so this is gonna be by Albino Dragons, and this is a card game about the movie Goonies, which is was a really fun movie, and it had a song by Cindy Lauper. It's a it's a one to four player cooperative card game. Um, and the story, basically the story of the movie and the game is, I guess it's set in the Goondocks neighborhood of Astoria, mm-hmm. Oregon, and, and you're some kids that, um, you live in that area and you're trying to find the treasure of the pirate One-Eyed Willie and you're trying to find this treasure, treasure because apparently you're going to get evicted out of your homes or something like that. And if you could find the treasure, someone's going to evict save you the, out of you your know. home. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's that old Gonna get evicted, so you gotta raise the money. Story that that's <laughs> it's Fair very enough. unique. Yeah, but anyway, um, so you're trying to find this treasure, but then there's also some um, crooks. The the Fertelli, what is it? The Fertellis family. They're a family of criminals, and they're also trying to find the treasure at the same time. So you're trying to deal with these uh, professional crooks. Okay. And the movie was a lot of fun. It was a little bit, a bit corny. The kids were probably I don't remember. I'd say about ten ten years old or so, more or less. So, you know, it's relatively lighthearted. Um, a little bit slapstick here and there. Okay. But this should be a neat game. This is a cooperative game, and you're trying to find the treasure, and you're dealing with these bad guys. So I'm looking forward to that. The second piece of news I have is less lighthearded, um, but it's another game. Do you know how much that Lock other and game is publishing. Be? I do not know. I do not have a price for it. It looks small, so I'm guessing... $50? 
Uh, 35 to $40. Okay. Just as a guess. It's a card game. So maybe even less than that, to be honest. Um, the next one is from Lock and Load Publishing. They announced that they have licensed the solo system from Conflict of Heroes, the one that was just developed and released last year. Um, and so they're going to be using it for their uh, Lock and Load series of games. I don't know much about... like. Th- there's a few different Lock and Load games, apparently. I think they're going to... Well, I don't know which one they're going to have it for, but it's going to be called uh, Lock and Load Heroes of Normandy Solo Adventure, or Solo Expansion, something like that. So that should be that should be neat. Okay. Mm-hmm. I I don't have a date for that or anything. It was just sort of I saw it actually in the solitaire games on your table geek list at the bottom. <laughs> Using the new summary. So, feature. If you're listening to, th- oh, that's a neat feature. I like. Why did you talk about? I that. have added. Yes. Okay. So so in the solitaire games on your table, uh, Kevin L. Kitchens, one of the one of the members of the One Player Guild, came up with this really neat tool on his own website, where and we'll include the link to that. I don't remember the exact name of the tool right now. The aggregator, aggregator. You go there and you could search by game, you could search by user, or by each uh, individual geek list. And see the the top games that have been played, how many times each game's been played, and by who, and all sorts of things. So it's a really neat way to to discover more information about the solitaire games that are getting played. Um, and now has he added a new function the other day where you could, in your geek list entry, as you're recording your solitaire play, you put in a summary tag, a summary tag, and it will show it separately in there, so you could quickly, so as people are browsing the games, they could quickly see somebody's uh, thoughts mm-hmm. on the game. And if you go to the aggregator, you'll see you'll see more information on. It. But it really is a neat tool, really handy, really easy to use. I believe it needs to see if I have a giveaway because of that. That's right. He is giving away, I think, a hundred geek codes, something like that. I'm pulling it open now, slowly. And so to enter this contest, all you have to do is, I think, it was thumb up his post. Go to the aggregator. Oh, no, you have and to make a in, post. In you have to make a post edited. using it, I believe. Yes. Well, I think he said both, you both needed to give him a thumb somewhere. To, to I, probably just to give profile to the to the contest entry, so more people. Well, it's see also it. easier to make and a, then, a draw if it's all thumbed. That's true. Yeah, exactly. And so and so you also have to go add a game to the solitaire games on your table list for March, and put in something with a summary tag. And the tag could be as simple as, hey, I like this game. And that's all I have to say. And then that'll help show up in the aggregator. Or that will show up in the aggregator. Pretty yep. neat. I, def- I like the design also. He also is including a uh, hot games list also, just based upon solitaire games on your table. Oh, neat. I, yeah. How do I find this aggregator now? Oh, I know. The link is on the One Player Guild homepage. So let's go oh, there. Is it? Mm hmm. It's sgoyt.one. S upon a game dot com. That's ones upon a game dot com. <laughs> All right. And then so you could search for a game by title. You could look at a specific geek list by month. Going way back to the first one in May 2013. And he has another aggregator for war games on your table, which is, I guess, basically the same, but for a different set of uh, geek lists. The lesser geek list. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Coming from the person who doesn't. But a little bit older, actually. That's funny. Yeah. Huh. 2009. 
a lot older. Neat. So yeah, check that out. Definitely. Twenty games currently are, including Cost Negotiator, Rally Man, Mage Knight, Sentinels, a bunch of others. Top number one is, or I guess the top one is Hostage Negotiator. Looking at how to use that. Now, where are you seeing that? Uh, if you go to it and you do leaders on the top of it, uh, you can look and see what ah, the okay. top ones are. And I've been looking at the bottom for the top, which is, I guess, obviously not the right way of doing things. But it's there. And I see Lewis and Clark is uh, already up there. Yeah, go Lewis and Clark. <laughs> We're just leaving Earth. This is going to be fun. I have to check this I... one often. Yeah, yeah, neat way to browse games. It's, it's very games. clean, very easy to read. Yeah. Hey, Hostage Negotiator has the most place. It is the hottest game right now. I am not surprised. Nope. And I'm still hoping that we're going to get a big box. <laughs> I want to see it come. I want to see yep. it come in a hundred card box. I don't know if you're familiar with those kind That's of boxes, just... like the wide boxes. Oh, you mean like for, for card uh, for. Like for yeah, magic, those types, yep. but in that with nice stuff on it, but so that it can just have the uh, index cards in it, or dividers rather. Mm-hmm. I don't think AJ knows it, but it's probably going to be a stretch go. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying that there's another Kickstarter coming that you're aware of? Uh, no, I'm not aware of anything. But <laughs> if I say it loud enough, it may happen. Assuming right? AJ's listening. Yeah, I try with my kids. It doesn't work with them either, though. So. <laughs> Try it with my wife. Try it at work. Yeah. Try it with the cats. Never works. I've got to find some better games for my daughter to play. Uh, yeah. She asked if she can play I Rampage today. I'm like, no, it's just not going to happen. Not going to happen. No? How old is She's she She's six. Six? Yeah, she she could play with it, but you'll lose yeah, little no, meeples. not going to happen. Yeah, we tried, we tried doing Forbidden Desert with her the other day, and it just didn't go. <laughs> anyway. You got to check out Hobba Games. Yeah, I know. There's some really good ones. I know. Anyway, so we've kind of gone a little bit of field of the news here. Yeah, and so that's it for my news. We're going to talk about what, one good one and one bad one. And I don't necessarily mean to say that it's a bad one. I'm just simply saying that they need to have a little bit more design. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I actually like so the idea. It's not idea a comment on the game. It's a comment on the. It's a comment on the campaign? Kickstarter campaign. Yes. So the first one we're going to talk about is called Dungeon Delvers, and this is one that uh, it looks like it's being done by another set of newbies, but it's interesting nonetheless. So the idea of Dungeon Delvers is. Quite obviously, it's a dungeon delving game where you are exploring a dungeon using your um, card, your personal deck to do things, attack, go through and beat the bad guys. So I mentioned deck. So, yes, this game is something of a deck building game. The idea of the game is that you start with your character deck. And so there's ten, there's excuse me, there's a couple different decks. Each one comes with 10 cards that are special towards that uh, character class. And then you'll draw from the dungeon deck and that can have 
monster encounters or treasures or traps or other sort of things that'll happen. And when you draw a card, so then you'll be able to battle against the other monster using your cards to do things, and it'll have a dice roll to do things. So it may roll and deal damage or make you lose health or lose your weapons or things like that. And so depending upon whatever's on its card. And you'll get to use your attacks from your cards to beat it. When you beat it, you'll have the ability to potentially get treasure. That treasure will be more different cards that you can put in your deck. And so by beating it, you'll be able to get armor cards and weapon cards that you'll be able to put in your deck. And that will let you do the deck building aspect of the game. Eventually, you'll go deeper, deeper down in the dungeon until you reach the boss room. And if you beat the boss room, you win. This, I mean, I've talked recently about another game, which I don't think is actually yet on Kickstarter. Oh, it's windy over there. Sorry about that. (laughs) I talked recently about another game, which was recently on Kickstarter. And um, that one also, the one that was um, the airship game. Names are not good of late. But I recently talked about an airship game, which also had a different sort of deck building mechanic. And that one also I thought looked interesting how you um, buy upgrades to build your deck up. And then your class cards is how many cards you can't, or your crew cards is how many cards you have to play. So the idea of another deck builder, again, it's doing something interesting, um, potentially a little bit different in that you only potentially a little bit different, but in that you deal damage with your deck and then you get more abilities when you find treasure. I won't say, I mean, it's hard really to make more of a determination about how different it is from other things based upon what it is that we see here on the campaign. But potentially it could be different. It does come with some dice for doing different things with the cards. I'm not sure how the dice necessarily tie into it. But everyone having their own different special cards and different things that they can do and different items is an interesting idea for mm-hmm. them to try and pull off, especially if the different color of dice do different things. Yeah. It looks here like on, on one of the cards, a Decaying Warrior has a, a little attack section, and you roll a d4 to see how much damage it does. Right. So, but I guess that's... I mean, I'm not sure. Is that just for the one Decaying Warrior? I don't know how your cards work. Does each card that you do take one turn or no turns? Is a card also something you put out and you have to roll a dot and see how well you do? Not sure. I, yeah, it doesn't really say it all, huh? It just says, the only thing it mentions is when fighting a monster, you roll two f- dice, two d4s. The first die tells you what the monster does. The second tells you which player the monster will target. Right. <laughs> it just doesn't say much. I mean, yeah. I'm, not sure, I'm not sure how the mechanics of the game really, really work. I mean, one other thing that's interesting is when you're describing the page, we think that people who like this game will also like Dungeons and Dragons and Munchkin. Those are two (laughs) very opposite sides of the scale. So unless you're just simply saying, oh, we have, I mean, in Munchkin, you get a deck and you build it. And in Dungeons and Dragons, you do a dungeon. So that's Dungeons and people will like it because there's cards. Question? (laughs) Dungeons. That's yeah. It it doesn't tell me a lot. What if you like Dungeons and Dragons and dislike Munchkin? I have no idea. Or what the other way around? I guess I have no idea. I don't know how the cards work. Potentially, it's an interesting idea. I like the idea of a deck builder that you build up your deck. Is hopefully, I mean, hopefully the 
dungeon deck will be stacked so that it gets harder towards the bottom. The easiest way to do that would probably be to have four level... I mean, I don't know how big the dungeon deck is supposed to be. Maybe it says 20 dungeon cards. Well, that's not very many. I guess maybe they'll put it in four sections of dungeon cards, so you'll randomize five, five, five. No, I'm not quite sure how that works. I have no idea. Although I see that there's eight boss cards, 20 dungeon cards, 25 monster cards. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. I just don't, I mean, I it, just don't know enough to, to go into this. Yeah, it'd be nice if there's more information. But you know what? I like the look of the game. I really do. From the one card that they show you. Two cards, no? Well, the second card on the board. Yeah. I like that the two pictures, the two artworks, I like them. I like line art like that. Now, I have no idea if this is the actual art they're going to use or not. The the designer, Richard Dickerson, is also appears to be a graphic designer, maybe? I mean, I know that they said that they don't have a gameplay video up because they don't have all the graphic design done yet, and so they don't have a very good copy of what it's going to look like. Hmm. So this just could be playtest art that they borrowed from the internet or something. No idea. I mean, I'd rather. I, I mean, it's really hard to be able to tell. That's just one of the risks when you're backing on a Kickstarter a game like this. You don't say no, and you're sort of guessing. Well, does it look interesting? Does it not? Also, of interest is that they're doing a 60 day campaign. Mm-hmm. Well, then we'll have plenty of time to find out. Well, assuming that they get any of it <laughs> done. I mean, that's that's a little bit larger than the norm. The norm is definitely to do smaller. Yeah. So. Yeah, half that time frame. Right. Or even less. <clears throat> I feel like some mm-hmm. of the bigger campaigns are moving and being even shorter. Yeah, I have noticed that, especially the ones that are already more successful and established uh, companies, yeah. they, they don't seem to need a long campaign, nor do they want it. I mean, it's hard to do yeah. when you're doing a long campaign. The problem is that there's always the doldrums in the middle. But I mean, anyway, that yep. this, is, this is Dungeon Delvers. If you want a copy of it, it's... $50 to get a copy of it, including getting a print-and-play copy. Wow, okay. And it's going to be finishing up May 10th, so quite a while from now. Next one I want to talk about is Tossetti. Now then, Tossetti we actually talked about once before. This is their second mm-hmm, time coming sounds back. sounds familiar. They're coming back. They've gone ahead and they've redesigned it. They've redesigned it so that they can get the initial buy-in cost later. Uh, buy-in cost lower, excuse me. Before, I can't remember how much it was before. I think it was more expensive. But now it's a $49 game. So $50 game in order to get a copy of it. I think it was 70 before. Um, uh, 59 plus shipping? When? The last time. Oh, it was 59 plus shipping? Oh, included shipping. So it's fifty nine. So now it's forty nine, which also includes shipping, um, within various places. Um, so they've done that, and they've they've had to cut out some other things and cut down some things. Which, as I said back then, even I'm okay with some of those things getting cut. I just don't think that there was as much need for some of the things that ended up getting in there. Um. But so this is another game. This one reminds me a lot of Eclipse, where the idea of the game is that you have the different, the, I can't call them hexes because they're not really hexes. They're more than hexes, 
but you have the different hexes, I'll call them anyway, of space, and each one has its own planet. In the beginning of the game, you're going to build out the galaxy by having the hexes all differently aligned. And then you are one of a various different player factions with your own player board, and you'll be able to go around the board, and you'll be able to attack other players with a dice-rolling mechanic, and you'll be able to build up new technology and get new orbitals out, which is one of the main ways to score points. And you'll be able to um, explore new space. So you go around and you flip over new space and you travel around and get new technologies and put different things in your spaceships. The basic, the base version of it, the one that comes with $49, comes with what, look in my opinion, to be these nice-looking meeple um, alien spaceships. So each player gets one spaceship. So you're not going to have a bunch of spaceships flying around like you would in Eclipse. If you get the premium version, which is the 69 version, excuse me, those turn into um, five different unique alien minis. Plus, it comes with an NPC um, expansion, which gives another NPC ship that can be running around and can even be running around if you're playing with the solo variant, uh, which is another unique thing. So that's uh, neat to have. Uh, I w- will admit that the NPC expansion looks more interesting to me than the minis. <laughs> and I'm definitely torn between getting the 49 or the 69 version of this one. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's a really nice looking game. It does look nice. I think that they've put a lot of effort into making it look nice. The color scheme is interesting what they chose, I think, with the bright pink, bright blue, green, purple, and white-ish. I guess it would be very good for colorblind, I think is where they were going for it. But neat looking. It, it looks Tron-ish, I think, is the best thing I can come up with, which is not bad. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. That, that's a good way to describe it. That's not a bad thing, especially being that we are in space and we're running around and we're doing all sorts of different things. It's definitely one I'm interested in. I'm a fan, personally, of Eclipse. And there's no solo version of Eclipse, to my knowledge. I don't think... I've not heard of a solo variant for Eclipse. Um, and this one comes straight with a solo variant. There's a separate rulebook, a separate four-page rulebook that uses the solo variant. And I think, I mean, reading the solo variant, it looks like he's definitely taken to heart a lot of things that other people have written about how to do a good solo variant. Especially, I think, as we're reading a lot of Morton... Uh, Pedersen's blog about designing solo variants and how to design a good one, because here he's emphasized on creating a solo variant that mimics the multiplayer dynamic and feel while reducing the overhead and burden of calculating. So he's tried to strip out all of the resource management and everything that would be involved in a true multiplayer and just bring it down to almost what looks like a set of automata cards where you're pulling cards to develop what it is that the solo players are going to be doing. And they'll be moving around the board and just sort of semi-doing a game based upon their priority structures and schemes and finding their own things. It looks like it's... I mean, that's the one of the best ways if you're trying to mimic a multiplayer feel with the solo variant. I think that's one of the best ways of doing it is by just trying to figure out how you can streamline it the most and just pull out the most important parts. And it definitely looks like he's been paying attention to that. 
Yep. It, that's neat. And have you tried the game? I see it's got a print and play option there. I don't think the print and play is available to just download. I think that you can buy it. There's a no. There's a link for it. Whoop. Uh, let's see here. You can download the free print and play here, and you can download the solo rules in the rule book. I'm aware that you can download the solo rules, but I was not aware that you can download the free print and play. You can download the rule book. Where's the print and play? I don't know what you're talking about. Right, right, right above the picture of the dice. Right Immediately above the dice. dice. No. Uh. Oh, and it's got custom oh. dice. Well, they're not yeah. custom dice. They're actually just D6s. Um, solo rules. Free print and play. Look at that. Neat. I wonder if anyone's put it up on Tabletop Simulator or something like that. Please put it up on Tabletop Simulator and I will play a copy. <laughs> I'll tell you more. Uh, no, I have not pulled it out. I've not printed it out. I mean, looking at the amount of stuff that comes in the box. I mean, oh my goodness. For me, I, tr- I don't like printing off things that are quite so huge. It's got 15 hex tiles. It's got 172 cards, 156 tokens. In addition to wood cubes, wood discs. Um, this looks like that would be a bear to print and play. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's got a ton of cards. Gosh. Uh-huh. Which, I, I could, mean, that I shows why it's out. worth $50 in order to get the game. I totally, but, I totally understand yeah. why it's worth $50. You get a ton of stuff in the box. Yeah, I mean, there's no way you could print it out and put it together in time to play it for the Kickstarter. I mean, well, you, you can, but that'd be hard to do. And how much time does this Kickstarter have left as of today? Uh, 23 days to go. Oh, yeah, that's enough time to do that. Yep, so it's going to be finishing up April 6th. Are you going to do it? You're going to print off the whole thing? No, I won't. <laughs> but you folks can, and let me know what you think. Well, I want to see someone just import it <laughs> into Tabletop Simulator, and I'll give it a I'll give it a go there. That's neat. That is neat. Yeah, it looks great. I really like the look of the game. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And this is also what's nice to know. No, I think I mentioned this before. We'll just scrap that. Scrap. Scrap it. Scrap Scrap it. it. I was about to say. And this is their second time around, so they've, you know, figured out what it is that's great and they're doing it again. (laughs) But I think I said that already. Yeah. Oh, and they're already funded. And they're already funded and already uh, taking on search goals. Mm -hmm. One of the nice things, the fact that it's the second time around, it seems to be complete. The game seems really ready. The rule book has great art. You know, it, it just looks done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. It looks nice. The solo rules are very brief. It's just one page. Four page. It's uh, a four page mini. Oh, I'm sorry. That was the end. Of, yeah, yeah. Four pages. You're right. Never mind. Which is, I'm okay with that. It's a whole separate solo rule book too. It seems to be. It that's seems nice. to be well implemented. Yeah. <clears throat> That's pretty cool. That's really cool. All right. And who's our next Kickstarter? That's it. That's it. Okay. That's all we need. That's it for Kickstarter. Although I want to see what Leaving Earth is. A tabletop game of the conquest of space. No. 
Are there many other solitaire games on Kickstarter right now that we're just not covering? Or is it sort of slow these days? It, well, I'd li- well, first of all, I try and limit myself that if something comes out not at a time when I can get right at the beginning of it, I tend not to cover it. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Because because of our lead time here, it's hard to, yeah, that's, that's to just tell people thing. about it with time. Um, but yeah, it is coming out slower. And I also tend... I'm, I've not been covering... All of them, but it is coming out slow. Hmm, okay. I haven't noticed too much. I haven't been following a whole lot. Understandable. All right. Shall we move on then? Certainly. Leave the can- land of Kickstarter. All right. So, so one thing I'd wanted to talk about, and just to try this out for fun, is you know. Are there any solitaire games that have ruined your multiplayer experience? Or or has the multiplayer experience killed the solitaire game for you? You know, and, and I kept thinking about this because of one specific game for myself. There is one game that I played and really enjoyed solitaire and I talked about it in the podcast and then I went and played multiplayer and oh, this that was not fun. Which game? I, I Snowdonia. Not one. And played. I'm sure it's a great that's a great worker placement game. And you know, I'm sure it was fine as a multiplayer game, but the, the experience for me was that I was so used to playing solo and having the whole board open to myself that every time I wanted to take an action in the multiplayer game, somebody was beating me to it or taking the card I wanted, and it became frustrating. <laughs> I, I still had a good time, don't get me wrong, but it, I did not find it as fun as playing solitaire where, where I could do anything I want and then really have to, for the most part, worry about things going away. I found it a more satisfying experience, maybe in a megalomania kind of way where I got full control of everything. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you're at least able to identify what the source of it is. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, I'm okay with it. I, I just thought it was interesting. It's like, you know, this is this is more fun solo than it is multiplayer. I think... For me. I think that for me, really, that's that's only really comes up with games that have too much um, downtime between turns. Yeah, and so if there's a ton of downtime, and I'm just stuck basically sitting there twiddling my thumbs for too much of the game, I won't want to play it again multiplayer. It just it yeah. loses a lot of that fun. Although I'm not, I think that probably I, th- I think the only offender I have of this in my collection right now would be um, Lewis and Clark. I think. Mm-hmm. Because I think Lewis and Clark okay. does have at, at one point in time you will have to stop and sit and think about what you're going to do with the rest of your hand. Usually, once you sort of figure that out, you can then play through your hand, which will take multiple turns, assuming you can remember all of the stuff you wanted to do, and you will sit and run through your your plan. But when you pick back up your hand for a second, you'll have to stop and think, okay. Now what do I want to do? And some of the time you'll have to stop and think again at other point in times, okay, well, now what do I want to do? And so I think that's potentially an offender to it because of the downtime of having to sit and wait for other people to t- take their turn. But on the other hand, I do yeah. like some of the aspects of a multiplayer, especially with um, you know, some of the, the randomness of being able to get a ton of components and then sometimes not being able to get a ton of components. There's that aspect is lost in Lewis and Clark and doesn't appear when you're doing solo because in solo, it's very controllable how many multipliers for components you're going to be making. 
because the only change in it is how many Indian meeples you've put out, and you are in complete control of that. It never changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there, there's one game that I listed because uh, the downtime was... I came up with like five or six games that I'd prefer solo by far. It was uh, Elder Sign, the Fantasy Flight dice rolling Cthulhu game. Yeah. Um, and again, that's because of the downtime. But granted, when I played a multiplayer, I think we had seven people playing. Oh so, my gosh. you know, there's long gaps between. Yeah. I don't even think it's, it supports that many. Is it, is it supposed to support that many or does it have that many yeah. characters? I think or it's maybe it was only be, six. I think it's supposed to be a two to five player game. Let me see. Uh, Elder Sign. You know, I'm pretty sure we were, went off what it said on the box. Oh, I should check BGG and not uh, Kickstarter. Elder Sign. Here we go again. First edition. Pages loading slowly. You slowed down the internet for everybody. Oh, yeah. One to eight players on the box. Wow. Look at that. Yeah. And I think we didn't. We only played with seven. <laughs> but, yeah, you get a lot of downtime that way. Um, and so, so because of that kind of experience, I could just play it solo and play three characters. Uh-huh. And it goes pretty quick, and that's fine. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think also you were mentioning about how you sort of want to have control of multiple things. I think with some other um, cooperative games, I think that's also turned up. With, for example, Flashpoint Fire Rescue, which is Mm -hmm. one of my favorite co-op games. But I also sometimes not wanted to play it with other people because, you know, you guys are going to mess up. (laughs) (laughs) I I know what to do. I've played this a lot more than you guys, and you guys are going to do it wrong. Yeah, that that can be hard. Sometimes I have that problem playing with my son, you know, which I I can't fault him. He he's only eight, right? But it's like, oh, that's not the right choice. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And then he does something. It's like, oh well, we'll lose. Yeah, now. and you can't. I mean, if you want to play <laughs> nice with others, you can't be a jerk about it either. You know, that, right, that's yeah. how being an alpha gamer, and that's just that's not a polite way to play. So you have yeah, to it let just other takes the fun away. Hmm. Absolutely. But, you know, I didn't I, – I listed Elder Sign. I thought about including Arkham Horror because of the same reason, because of the downtime. But I don't play it enough to be able to to say that the Solitaire game killed the multiplayer game. Mm-hmm. Just the, the amount of time it takes to play in general has sort of killed it for me, mm-hmm. whether Solitaire or multiplayer. And I know some folks can play it quick, but I just haven't gotten there. Mm-hmm. Um, Another game is Ricochet Robot. Have you ever played that? I have. Okay, so that one – I, when I've played multiplayer, my experience is that different people, some people just cannot play the game well, and some can, because it's, cause you have a time limit that you're trying to look at to see how, how quickly you can move the robot, and if you can't visualize, visualize that quickly, you're just going to do horrible in the game, and that ends up making the game unfun for some people. And, and so if you play it solo, that's not an issue. Everybody has fun. <laughs> <laughs> Theoretically, at least, yes. Yeah. And maybe it's not the solo game that kills that one for me in the multiplayer aspect. Just the, the fact that it could be so unbalanced when you do play it multiplayer. What, just that to makes me not that want to bring gets, it up. you're saying? It, it's not, not so much. It's just sometimes one person's really good at visualizing the stuff, and that person would just outrun, outright win the game. And nobody else even has a chance. Yeah, I've had that problem sometimes with games that I bring to game night. Where, you know, it's one of my games. Like, I recently played Bora Bora, uh, which is a Stefan Feld point salad game. 
and mm-hmm. I know how to play the game and I understand how to be efficient. And I won by 50 points and everyone else was all bunched up 50 points behind me. <laughs> I knew how to play the so, game and this was their first time. But, you know, it's not like we can continue to play games. When you're playing solo, you're as balanced as everyone else around. You're never going to be having a skill <laughs> level. So. Right. You're never going to be having a <laughs> skill level difference between you and other players that would lead to an unfun game between everyone else. Yep. Maybe they should have these kinds of games like that. You're saying whoever's in second place wins. That way the runaway leaders just, you know, too bad for them. I'm not quite <laughs> sure how that would work. It, it'd have to be a thematic sort of thing. Where if you do really well, you just actually didn't do well at all. Like, I don't know, a, a shot put game or something. So if you if you threw too hard, you lost, right? <laughs> I don't that'd know. Be, I don't know. Be, we'll have to think silly. on that more. Yeah, but it would help with that issue. Um, and another game finally for me was Onirum, which having played it solitaire multiplayer, I much preferred the solo version. And maybe that's unfair because it was originally designed right. as a solo I game. Right, I think that's a little unfair. Yeah. And that's like complaining that a multiplayer game, you won't play it solo anymore because the solo game is only half the game or something. Right. And blink. And I haven't had a chance to play the newest Dawn of the Zeds either, but I was a little concerned because of the problem with Onirim and Sylveon and these sort of games that they were originally designed to be solo, and now we have a multiplayer variant. Does that work? Okay, the Dawn of the Zeds is the the one based on the comic book. Dawn of the oh no no Dawn no, of the Zeds, they're both victory. It's a victory point yes. game. Yes, yes. And I haven't yeah haven't played it. I mean, it's not out yet. <laughs> Well, that's another reason. It's not out yet, so I can't really judge. I can't judge it before it's out. But I'll I'll admit to being concerned because of the same sort of thing that creeps up with Onirim and these sort of solo-only games. They don't work when you play multiplayer. I mean, I've I've done quite a fair amount of demos for um, Hassan's Negotiator. It's an excellent game to do to do demos for at my local game group because it's small and you can introduce people to it. But you can't do it you can't do a group thing. When I'm doing demo for it, I'm not helping. I'm managing the games. Essentially I'm an app that's moving all the cards around <laughs> to all the right places and handing them cards and saying, Well, what do you want to do with this? Oh great, good idea. Okay, we'll do this. Okay, roll the dice. And I'm essentially just a Rublix enforcer and card mover. But I'm not you you can't play you can't play these solo games co-op. I just don't think I I have not had good luck with them when I'm playing a solo game co-op. Okay, I've heard some people play State of Siege games cooperatively where you just take turns. But I'm not sure if that's the same cuz everybody's controlling the same pieces. I mean, essentially when I'm doing that, so it's that, not a matter. I've done similar stuff to that, but we're not really taking turns because have we not talked this whole time about what our plan is and what we're doing? If we've not talked at all, so I have to look at the board and be like, oh, God, he's moving off to Germany. I would really have loved to move off to Russia, and now we're moving off to Germany. I can move back to Russia next turn. He says, no, we're going to Germany. We move back to Germany. What are you two doing? And if you guys are talking and arranging for a strategy together, you're not really taking turns. I mean, not only you're taking turns, but really you're just doing it together and putting groupthink into the game. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Which which is sort of a gosh, what am I thinking? 
It's sort of an alpha gamer thing. It, it very much can be an alpha <laughs> gamer be. thing, but it's also not a multiplayer. Co- it's not a multiplayer variant. If you, it's like when you. It's sort of like when you say that there's a variant for a co-op game to be solo friendly when you play multiple hands. So this is the this is the opposite. It's a solo variant when you play with multiple <laughs> brains. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's it's not it's not a variant. You guys are all just trying to group think and consider all the best options for how you want to do it. It's not a multiplayer variant. It's you're not really playing multiplayer. Additionally, you're not really playing together because I've I've not found that that really works so well. <laughs> you do have different people. <laughs> At one point in time, someone has to make a decision. You can't even say like, okay, it's my game, my my turn. I'm going to make that decision. There's no hands off. That I wonder if you could if you did do that. I wonder how that would work out. That'd be interesting. How you did what? If you actually like took turns and just force yourself to keep your mouth quiet when it's not your turn. <laughs> well, have you ever played? That'd be interesting. Um, have you ever played and then we held hands? No, but that's that sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly. And then we held hands mm. as a co-op. It is not solo friendly, but it's a co-op where you are working together with the other player to coordinate so that both of your pieces come into the center at the same time. And you guys have to coordinate, but you're allowed to use each other's hands. You play open hands. You're allowed to use each other's hands to move around the board and try and stay centered and achieve your mini goals along the way. But you can't talk about the game while you're playing the game. So you can't share strategy about the game. I've done this once. It's really frustrating when the other person has no clue what you're trying to do. (laughs) Because you're like, I would love to be doing this as my strategy and the other person's like we're doing this as a strategy at the end of the game I, t- I spoke with him and he was like i don't understand what you were doing i was trying to fill the mini goals i don't understand what you were doing i was trying to make sure that we stayed balanced and weren't killing ourselves by not having too many cards and you kept spending <laughs> all of cards every single time and so oh gosh <laughs> like, so there was a little bit of an in-game fight but we couldn't talk about the fight time. <laughs> it was a little bit ridiculous <laughs> suffice to say that, we did not funny. win yeah, that sounds that sounds rough. <laughs> I played a game like that called Shh. It's one of these hip pocket games, really skinny deck of sure. guards, looks like a stick of gums. Sure. And in there, everybody has a, all the cards. There's 26 cards. They're all the letters of the alphabet. And all the consonants are put into people's hands. And you take turns playing cards, trying to build a word together. Mm-hmm. But you can't talk about what word you're building. Hence the game's title, Shh. No talking. So, you know, so I, I might play a C... Next person plays an R, third person plays an E. You know, I better have a letter that follows it that still makes a word. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> and that that was fun, but that that's hard and uh, hopeless. It felt hopeless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so so one other game, and this one hasn't killed the multiplayer game for me. I could see it happening. I could also see it going the other way. That's Steam, the the train game. Go ahead. Where, where um, you know, I love this game. I don't unfortunately don't get to play it much. It's sort of like Snowdonia where it gets frustrating because other people get in your way. But I've also found that fun in that game. So I think potentially playing that multiplayer enough, I would just not be interested in playing Solitaire because it lacks so much of the... uh, so many aspects of the multiplayer game. So many of the tough choices. But then again, playing Solitaire game, it would knock out all all those opponents getting in my way and those pesky people. Right. So I, I don't know. I could see that going both ways. I could see that being the other kind of game, the one that kills the multi the multiplayer game, killing the solo experience. Right. Well, I think that's more a matter of poor design for the solo game, because a a point of a good solo game would be to replicate 
a, would be to replicate the multiplayer experience, not to be a different game out of the box. I mean, I think that in my opinion, one of them that isn't a good multiplayer experience is um, Greenland. Because in Greenland, when you're playing multiplayer, so there's a certain amount of push your luck and, and, and you're feeling a competition of resources with the other players when you're trying to go out there and pick up stuff and take over the good islands. Whereas when you're playing solo, all of that disappears and it's just a dice rolling game. You just have to, you have to roll and get lucky. And you're not, you're mm-hmm. not competing with anyone. You're not, having to to push your luck and think well and double think someone else and you're not having to keep hard control in your resources just in case you don't get something or just in case he beats you there and you didn't uh, predict him and you don't have to worry about well i have to place small bets in different places no you go all in on one thing because you know nobody else is going to come get that and then you just have to see how lucky you get <laughs> you know yep so i think that's the one that kills it for me is because it doesn't. It doesn't feel like the multiplayer, uh, and you know, usually that's a bad enough thing. When it doesn't feel like the multiplayer and it doesn't feel good, then it's definitely a bad thing. Yeah, I, I found the solitaire player in that interesting, but it, it ends up being more of a, a min-max or, or an optimal move type of puzzle with a ton of die randomness thrown right. in, which can be a little frustrating and and futile feeling but it, it does make me want to play the multiplayer game actually it makes me want to see how that feels because that sure seems interesting so i think that one actually sells the multiplayer experience <laughs> well but we're not talking about which ones sell the multiplayer experience i think no i, I know think selling multiplayer experience <laughs> by giving a really bad solo experience isn't necessarily a good thing but we're not talking about which ones sell the multiplayer experience. we're talking about which ones after playing the multiplayer did you entirely not want to play solo or vice versa and to me, this so is what a solo games kills a solo game for you? <laughs> what solo games kills a solo game? <laughs> that yeah, that's what that question was. <laughs> no, no. For, okay, so let, let's move forward. Uh, bad joke there. What multiplayer games killed solo games for you? Now, one I've got is Star Realms. I, I like the solo game experience before, but having played it multiplayer more, especially with my son, and a whole lot more online, I find I just don't want to go back and play the the solo game. I'd rather just save it for when I could play two players. Okay. Why? And <laughs> um, you've given me the conclusion, but why? I don't know why. Honestly, I I just it's a is it that there's not enough tension when you're playing the solo game? The the tension is not the same, and the the experience is not the same. It's it, it just feels very different. I, I I can't I can't put better words to that. I'm afraid. I don't know why. Okay. I think one that for me um, made the the well, it's hard for me sometimes with some of these because I started with the multiplayer and then I played the solo game and the solo game I didn't ever want to play. But another example was um, Escape. Mm-hmm. And with Escape, when you're playing Escape the what's it called escape the curse of the escape the curse of the temple with escape the idea of it is it's a 10 minute only game on a timer and everyone is rolling dice like crazy if you roll a black die you're locked otherwise you can use your dice to move around the board and do other things uh involving the board when you're playing solo so you have extra dice so it's harder to get locked but you know a bunch of the mechanics of the game 
I mean, is this one? Let's see here. Yeah, it, it says on the box one to five. But with this one, when you're playing solo, so you get extra dice. But a bunch of the curses that come up, and some of the some of the time in the game when you flip over a tile, you get a curse that, for example, you can't talk, or you have to roll one-handed, or you have to stand up, or you have to put a hand on your head. Some of those just don't, I mean, they're they don't matter that much. They're easier to get rid of with the extra dice for one. When you don't mm-hmm. have as many yeah. dice and other players, I don't think can help you out with curses in the, in the multiplayer game. So you have more dice, they're a lot easier to right. get rid of. So the curses don't last as long, but some of them don't matter. So for example, you can't talk. Okay. Yeah. You, get, you know, I wasn't going to talk right. anyway. You get swapped <laughs> with another player's card, uh, dice. Okay. You know, some of these, they just don't matter. And also getting locked, a lot of the fun is working together with other players and working as a team frenetically and frantically. And then if you get locked, you have to call help, 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 help. If you get locked to this one, you're just stuck. I mean, you can use one of the reset buttons that you, that you have. You get a certain amount of reset buttons in the game. But if you get locked, you just get locked. And you're just, yep. you're just stuck. That's it. Yeah. You know, this is on my list also, though... I don't feel as strongly about it. I still enjoy this Alter game and I'll play it, but it, it is a lot more fun multiplayer. It's such a boisterous game where you're playing with other people. Mm-hmm. Like I said, you're, you're yelling and calling for help and just talking and racing and it's so frantic. Mm-hmm. It's fun. Yeah, I think, I mean, if you're trying to look for a fun style of game also, I think that that is another one. Another one that's also a co-op that the multiplayer hurts is um, Red November, which I think I covered once before. Mm-hmm, yep. I've never played that multiplayer. And, well, did you like it solo? Yeah, I liked it solo. It, it was fun. It was, it was fun running around and trying to do it stuff. It was fun running around trying to do stuff. But when you play it multiplayer, so then I think it's because of the, the silly theme to it and with the time always pushing forward, having the ability to sort of just shout at another person, you messed it up and, and take part in the <laughs> silliness of that. I guess that's not really a great explanation because it didn't really kill it. Yeah. It didn't really make it bad. But when you're trying to be silly and funny, I've never really been silly and funny just by myself. <laughs> and so if the game doesn't, no, it doesn't if work the game so well. doesn't take itself seriously and you're playing a, and you're playing a silly game, it's it's harder to really get that sense of the theme and the silliness when you're playing by yourself. And so I feel like the game has yeah. to be a more serious game to really be a good and it's not not to say a good because I actually do like Red November by itself, but to be optimum it it has to be a more serious game and not really rely on the silliness. Yeah, definitely. You know, it seems so for in in all these cases the same issue. The games are just more fun when they're multiplayer. And for the solo, it seems like there's a few different reasons. For the games where solitaire play was better, it seems there's a few different reasons why that was true. But here, it's every time. It's just it's more fun when you play multiplayer. Well, I think it's also just that it doesn't keep all of the it. I mean, the biggest issue is that it doesn't keep all of the multiplayer aspects alive. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't keep them all alive. Uh, yep. But, I mean, have you played any of the puzzle games of Battle for Kemble's Cascade, out of curiosity? No, I haven't played that at all. Battle for Kemble's Cascade is a, it feels like an 8-bit side-scroller game, where the solo variant, or the official solo variant for that game, is actually a set of puzzles, where you set up the game and you puzzle your way how to get through it. 
I think that almost something like that is an exception to the rule. Because here, it's quite explicit. You happen to have the game, and you happen to like it multiplayer. This is entirely not meaning to be a game, to the extent that it's a puzzle. Once you figure it out, you can't play that puzzle again. Right? Mm, Okay. And so I don't think that killed it, because... It's not like I will want to, I'll I'll be like, I don't want to play this because I don't like playing it solo. It's an entirely different thing. It's almost like a different game in the box. I don't think, yeah, yeah. I don't think I would recommend getting it for the solo, but that wouldn't be like I would, I would not recommend the solo once you have the game. You're right. May as well try it, but just don't buy it for that. That makes sense. There's a couple, one other game that I mentioned, which we had talked about recently, very recently, which I don't think. Is even on the list for you. Bottom of the ninth, because I enjoyed the solitaire game for it. I had fun with it. It felt to me like a a role playing experience. But the, the multiplayer game is so much more interesting. I think. Oh, I haven't even thought about that one. We did review that one recently, yeah. and I think I said even during the review that it's it's not for me solo. That yep. for me solo, it's scripted. You just turn the card and you see what you do. Yeah, and for me, I was doing the role playing, and that made it a whole lot more fun. But be, because I'm not a baseball fan, really, I'd still rather play multiplayer and, and have that head-to-head dialogue and, and tension going yeah, on. Yeah, like I said, to me, the stare down is the best part. And when the stare down is a card, you're just turning a card and you're just seeing. Mm-hmm. So, but I mean, that's another one that the you just lose. You lost the stare down when you went to solo. You lost it. You know, I think that's the most yeah. important thing. And I think really, when you're looking at some of the variants for solo... I think a lot of the variants lose and don't get into my common play for one of two reasons. They've tried to make a different game in the box or they've made too much um, uh, calculator work, too much upkeep. Yeah. You know, you know I, I don't mind if the, the game is different, the solitaire game. It could be entirely different and just use the same components. That That's fine by me as long as it's an interesting game. You know... If if now that doesn't work, if you expect it to be the same as the multiplayer game, and then sort of that ends up being just a letdown because it's not what you expected. But generally speaking, it doesn't bother me as long as it's fun. I mean that. I mean, I think that usually if I want to play a different game, I want to play a different game. I think that if I want to play a variant, it's because you know, for instance, when I was mentioning Castles of Burgundy the other day, you said, "Have you ever played the solo variant for it?" And I said, "No, I haven't." Well, okay, now I have. And I'll be honest, the variant I played, and I apologize that I can't give anything, and it may be that there are multiple variants out there, in which case this is not so helpful. But the <laughs> variant that I played, uh, I did not like it. <laughs> oh. I did not like it. Especially since there's sort of just a general overflood of the board of stuff that you can't take anymore throughout the course of the game. And I didn't like it because it played very differently. Usually with that one at the beginning of the round, for example, I have much more power than I had in this one. And I just didn't feel like I did. You know, it was Hmm, hard. Okay. It was hard. I've got one more game I'd like to mention, and this is more of an honorable mention. Um, The Lord of the Rings card game, which is my most played game by far in BGG. Uh, I've been tracking my replays, and for that I have like over 130 Mm -hmm. The second closest is Sentinels of the Multiverse with like about 30 plays. So it's a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that solitaire. And, and I enjoy playing the, the adventure and then just getting 
destroyed by it and then trying to tweak my deck and find a better deck and, and keep playing and tweaking until I get the right deck to beat the adventure and then going on to the next and just going through all the stories sequentially. I, I love that. But I think, and I haven't played enough multiplayer to, to know for sure, that I would enjoy that more and would play it even more if, if I... Once my son is older, because <laughs> because playing with him right now it's entertaining, but oh, it's so frustrating. <laughs> I hear you. He is he is so slow. You know the games take hours when it shouldn't, but you know it's still good. And I think at some point the, the multiplayer game will be so much more fun that I I won't want to play solitaire anymore. And I've actually heard that happens a lot with that game. So we'll see. <laughs> how much how much does it bother you sometimes that solo variants require? essentially just a randomized solo AI and that solo AI can be really stupid. And you know, the one I'm thinking of right the second is nations, the dice game where you lay out different columns and mm-hmm. he may for multiple times in a row, not pick the really obvious great tile that any sensible real game person would have gotten, but he didn't do it. You know, that doesn't bother me so much especially with nations because when i'm playing i net not i'm not paying that much attention to what the other people should be getting and what what they'll benefit from so like to me it sort of feels like what's being taken away by the other people is, is random anyway i may as well just been a d4 <laughs> so so i don't know it doesn't bother me there at all is it uh sometimes when you know for example I personally feel like some of the tiles, if they're cheap, you just sort of have to get, for example, you know, get gold dice, you know, on, mm-hmm. on the one slots. Sometimes his first turn, he'll roll four. <laughs> He's like, okay, yeah. <laughs> I'll just get another one then. Yeah, I, I love that. But, you know, on the other hand, sometimes it's it's such a push or luck thing because, you know, I say, I really want these three. Th- I really, really want this one over here. But I think I could wait because he's probably going to not get to that tile anytime soon. And so I, I kind of push my luck, and then he ends up getting the tile I was hoping to get. And, and so it ends up being more of a push or luck game. So I does find. it bother you that the solo games – has it ever no. bothered you that the solo games are stupid? No. Or, excuse um, me. I didn't say that correctly. That the solo AIs do not act like a real person and can make stupid decisions due to random random number generator. Not Not, not so much. And especially not with nations. To me, that AI does an excellent job of simulating. A I think player. the reason why I, I, I don't mind it with nations, the dice game, is because it's such a short, fast game that mm-hmm. you know it's it's a lighter game. But I think that if I were playing something that's a heavier game, and I can't think of one because I don't think I have that many solo games that last for hours. But if it were a solo game that lasts for hours and he was doing silly moves, I don't think I would like it. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't work. So what is uh, the Nations? The card game is has the same sort of solo variant. Does it? I don't think I've played and, it solo. Yeah. That one, I think the solo game lasts about forty five minutes if I remember okay. right. It's it's been a while, and and there I didn't mind either. It, it also worked out. Um, but but that is such a even solitaire, such a bigger, more complex game that it ended up never being an issue. Yeah. Hmm. Um, are there any other games where that really did bother me, the randomness? I'm sure there are. Oh, none come to mind. No, no, nope. What's over here? Yeah, I know. No, the more I think about it, I think I enjoy that. I, I enjoy it when the AI has to go and he could take a really great card that I really, really need or do a real useful action for me. Or he could take something dumb 
And then he takes that dumb choice, and it makes me so happy. <laughs> I know it's totally random, but I, I love that. So actually, I, I think it's a lot of fun. Unless you're taking out a mechanism that was just super fun in the multiplayer game and has turned into just a, a die roll. So, so yeah, there you go. Do right, I don't else? have anything else. I do not. Shall we move on to our next segment? Sure. Hi, welcome to PNP Patrol. I'm Chris, and today I'm going to be talking about Mr. Cabbage Head's Garden Game by Todd Sanders. In this game, you're trying to plant a garden and win the top prize for having the prettiest vegetables and the prettiest arrangement of your garden. Your garden's going to go into a 6x3 grid that's made up of vegetable cards, and you're trying to score points by having matching vegetables adjacent to each other. You also have four neighbor cards. And these neighbors represent annoying people that live next door. They're always hanging out, watching what you're doing, driving you crazy. And they're also going to be stealing your vegetables as the game progresses. Finally, you have a beehive and a few bee tokens. And the beehive functions as kind of the currency of the game. Sometimes planting a vegetable requires a bee, and sometimes planting a vegetable will get you an extra bee. So before I can explain the game, I have to tell you a little bit about the vegetable cards. Each vegetable card has a picture of the type of vegetable on it, and there's nine different vegetables that you can plant. Uh, it has the total number for each type of vegetable. There are seven carrot cards in the deck, so the, the carrot card will have a little seven on it. The second number shows the total number of points that that card is worth at the end of the game for scoring purposes. The third number is called the neighbor number, and the fourth tells you the number of neighbor tokens that you need to draw at the end of your turn. And I'm going to explain a little bit more how that works when I talk about how the game is played. To start the game, you're going to shuffle your 45 vegetable cards together, and every 15 cards you're going to put an on-holiday card. Then you're going to put your four neighbor cards near the garden, and you'll also set up your beehive near the garden, with three bees on the beehive and three bees nearby. And, and the bees can be cubes or they can be tokens that are provided with the game that have little bees on them. Each turn, what you're going to do is draw three cards and lay them out in the order that they were drawn. And you're going to choose one of these to plant in your garden. When you're choosing which card to plant, you may have to pay one of your bees. So the way this works is the left card out of the three that you've drawn, the one furthest on the left, costs one bee to plant. So you'll take the bee off of your hive and put it with the others that aren't on your hive. Uh, the right bee will actually put a bee from that group back onto your hive. And the middle card is free and doesn't affect your hive or the bees on it at all. So you're going to have bees going back and forth as you pick the left card and the right card from turn to turn. And you need to kind of balance this out. Because if you're ever in a position where you can't play a bee um, because you've spent all of your bees off of the hive or all of your bees are on the hive, you can't do the associated action. If all of your bees were off of the hive, you couldn't plant your left card because that left card requires you to take a bee off of your hive. Likewise, if all of your bees were on the hive, you couldn't play your right card because that card requires you to place a bee on your hive. So you've got to kind of watch out for that during the game and make sure that you're choosing both the left card and the right card back and forth so that you don't ever run out of one or the other. After you've chosen what card you're going to plant out of the three that you have, you're going to look at the two remaining cards and look to see which one has the highest neighbor number. 
Whichever card has a higher neighbor number, you'll look at that card's token number and you'll draw that number of neighbor tokens from your face down pile. These neighbor tokens match your neighbor cards. So if you draw an onion token, you'll actually put it onto the onion card. And if you draw the tomato token, you'll put it on the tomato card. And you'll do that at the end of every turn until you draw an on-holiday card. So you put the on-holiday cards in your deck every 15 cards. And when you draw one of the on-holiday cards, that means that you're so fed up with your neighbors talking to you all the time that you're, you've got to go on a vacation. You've got to get out of there. So when you're away on your vacation, whichever neighbor token has the most tokens is going to come into your garden and steal one of your vegetables. Each neighbor is going to choose a different type of vegetable. For example, Mr. Onionhead only likes the white vegetables, so he's going to come in and take one of the white plants from your garden when you go on vacation if he has the most neighbor tokens on his card. When you go on holiday, if any of the two neighbors have the same number of tokens, then that's very good for you because it means that there's a tie and no one steals any of your vegetables. The, the rules say they're too busy arguing between themselves to come over and steal your vegetables. So if that happens, you don't actually lose anything. So the game plays for 15 total turns. Every five turns, you go on holiday and risk losing one of your vegetables to your neighbor. And then at the, at the end of that 15 turns, you'll actually score your garden. And you score your garden by looking at what vegetables are adjacent to each other and adding up the points for those. If, if you only have one vegetable that's not touching any other matching vegetables, it won't score any points. You have to at least have two vegetables that are adjacent to score points. There's also a few patterns you can make, such as having the three columns on either side of the row be matching sets of vegetables. That can score you additional points at the end for having your garden be extra beautiful. And that's all there is to it. The game plays pretty quickly. This only takes 10 or 15 minutes to play once you know the rules. It's a fun little puzzle game. It's not too deep, but offers some good decision-making along the way as you're always picking which card you want to plant. So this game was done by Todd Sanders. So, of course, it has really nice graphic design and layout work. This is a case of found art. This isn't original artwork to Todd. The artwork for this game is found from old seed bags, like turn-of-the-century seed bags. And every plant you're planting has a picture of a vegetable, which is an illustration from the early 1900s. The artwork for your neighbors and for Mr. Cabbagehead himself are these old illustrations of personified vegetables that came from seed catalogs or, or you know, early artwork of gardening. They look really unique. Um, and this is totally a case of Todd finding this artwork and thinking, I want to do something. I want to make a game with this and creating something new and original uh, that doesn't look like anything else out there because it's got this totally unique artwork. Having this older artwork as well also gives the game a unique sense of vegetables that you don't see very often. I mean, you've got tomatoes and onions and things, but you also have vegetables like salsify and brassica, which I wasn't even familiar with before playing this game. And maybe they're, they're more popular in, in Europe than they are in America, but these aren't common vegetables that you're going to see in your local nurseries when you're picking vegetables to plant. So I like this game a lot. This offers a unique challenge as you're trying to figure out the best layout for your garden, especially if you're trying for some of the patterns that you can be judged on at the end of the game. If you have the cards in a certain alignment, you can get some big points that way and, and really boost your score. There is a lot of randomness in the game based on which neighbor is going to be activated. It, it comes out of the, the token pool 
the end of each turn, you're going to be drawing neighbor tokens, and you don't have a lot of control over which neighbor is going to be activated. And even if you're trying to plan for this neighbor's in the lead, he's got three tokens on him and everyone else has two, on your next turn you could draw three tokens for the same neighbor, and that new neighbor would suddenly be in the lead. It's difficult to try to plan around neighbors and try to make sure that you have vegetables that they can steal without hurting your plans long term because that balance of which neighbor is in the lead can change really, really quickly as you draw new tokens. The mechanic with the bees is interesting, and that's where you're planning the left card or the right card. You have to take a bee off of your hive or put a bee onto your hive based on which card you choose. It's something else that you need to manage, but it isn't super hard to do. There might be a situation where a card that you want keeps consistently coming up in the left place of your three cards, so you're always taking bees off of the hive. But in general, you're able to manage that and say, okay, I don't have very many bees left. I'm going to try to take the right card as soon as I can. I haven't found that to be super hard to manage, and I think that's because there isn't anything special about the first card or the third card in the game. They're just random cards that happen to fall into those positions. So sometimes if if you're trying to build up a large section of carrots so that you can get a bunch of points for having carrots adjacent to each other, the carrots are going to show up all over the place in the left position or the right position or sometimes in the middle position that don't affect your bees at all. So I found that you usually have some pretty good options to make sure that you always have a balance of bees so that you can pick whichever card you want on a turn. I really like the humor throughout this game. The rules are written in a very lighthearted way. The descriptions of everything in this game are kind of silly, from the way the neighbors are described as being incredibly annoying, and the score system at the end of the game has funny rankings for how well you did at the end of the game. For example, you might at the end of the game, get your garden judged and earn a hearty handshake or a cordial applause, or if you do pretty bad, you just get polite murmurs for your lowest score. And of course, the artwork is kind of funny by itself. These personified cobs of corn and tomatoes just look freakishly weird to us. Uh, I, I don't think it's an illustration you'd see on seed packs today, which make them really jarring to think these were actually used to sell plant seeds a hundred years ago, and now they're used to illustrate this game. But they fit in well with that kind of lighthearted, funny feel of the game. So talking about how the print and play aspect of this works, this is basically just a card game. Uh, It's a standard deck of 52 cards. It comes on six sheets with nine cards each, so it's pretty easy to just cut those nine cards apart. Backs come with the game as well if you wanted to print the backs for the cards. Those aren't 100% necessary, but they do look very nice. And one of the cards does have a description of each of the layouts you can do to score additional points at the end of the game, so it might be good to print at least some of the backs that could be useful to you during the game. The game also comes with double-sided tokens that can be used for the neighbors and the beehive. And these tokens... The backs are totally optional. If you didn't want to make them double-sided, that wouldn't be a problem at all. And if you didn't want to use them at all, all they have is a picture of the neighbor. You could just use cubes. And Todd carefully picked the neighbors for this game so that you can easily match colored cubes to the neighbor cards without forgetting which one was which. For example, you could grab red cubes for the tomato and white cubes uh, for the onion and green cubes for the brassica and everything's going to match up really nicely and you don't have any confusion on which cube is which. 
There's also a small expansion to the game that comes with five additional neighbor cards. These neighbor cards work the same as the others. Uh, they just steal different vegetables and do different actions at the end of the game. So you can actually mix these in with your existing neighbor cards and pick out four of them to play the game with. And then you'd only use their associated neighbor tokens depending on what card you're playing with. This can extend the longevity of the game quite a bit because you've got a total of nine different neighbors, each of which does something different. And you can get a lot of variety to the game just by trying out different combinations of neighbors. There's also several different ways to earn bonus points at the end of the game by having your cards in certain layouts. Uh, it can be fun to try for these. It's also very difficult to do sometimes because your cards are going to get stolen by the neighbors. There's several that I haven't yet achieved despite several plays. I've been able to do some of them, but uh, some of those arrangements are very, very difficult. But if you can pull them off, you get an extra 15 to 20 points depending on which one you choose. I think perhaps the only downside I could say about this game is that it's not terribly challenging. For example, at the end of the round when you go to see which neighbor has the most tokens, it's pretty common to have ties. So you could have the mayor of Onion Town and Lord Carrot Body both have three tokens on them, and then nobody is going to come and steal your vegetables. It's really a relief when it happens, but I have had games where all three rounds I had a tie, and so no one stole any of my vegetables. It was nice, but it removed some of the challenge from the game. Also, the challenge of managing the bees, as I described, is pretty easy to do. I, I can see cases where if a vegetable you wanted that was a little bit rarer to find, like the salsify, was only coming up in the right-hand spot by chance, that you would use up your available bees and you wouldn't be able to take that card when it came up. But those situations are going to be a little rarer, I think, and they're pretty easy to manage. Uh, the bigger challenge comes in laying out the garden for the most available points. That can be difficult to do because sometimes you'll draw a card and you won't be able to score it because all of the cards that would be adjacent to it uh, have another card next to them or they're at the edge of the grid so you can't put another card by them. Mm -hmm. So really your challenge is working with how you're placing your garden with also sometimes the neighbors stealing your vegetables and also managing the bees. So everything wraps up into a nice little package, but it's not as challenging as it could be. And that's not a bad thing. This is a quick game, and it's still a lot of fun. And to be totally fair, I have never won a blue ribbon when having my garden judge. The best I've achieved is having a red ribbon. So even when I haven't had my neighbors stealing my vegetables, I still haven't been able to get the top score. So... There is some challenge in, in trying to beat yourself from game to game, and the game is short enough that you can play it several different times and try to have the highest score and, and try to beat the score that you had before. Overall, I really like this game. It's easy to build, very fast to learn, the rules are short, plays in about 15 minutes, it has a great sense of humor, and it's a lot of fun. So I recommend that you check it out. I'll talk to you guys next time. Thanks. Yes, uh, yes, so now, Julius, you've been playing a, a game for us. Project Dreamscape. Um, yeah, they were kind enough to send me a copy of Project Dreamscape here. And like you said, I believe that both of these people are active members of the One Player Guild. 
And I recall when this one actually came up on um, Kickstarter quite a while back, and I was very interested to take a look at it then. Project Dreamscape is a game where you are a member of an experiment having to deal with the control of dreams, and you're entered into a giant machine with various other members when you're playing with other people with various other members of the experiment and together all of you are going to be controlling the shared dreamscape and the goal of the game is to there's going to be a set of cards that are going to be in the center and on your turn you'll be able to spend currency z's in order to take cards from the center and put it into your rem stack each of these cards has a top and a bottom to it. So the top may be a yellow and the bottom may be a green. And you'll build up on your REM stack and you'll try and put cards of the same type next to each other. Next to each other does not mean that they have to both be on top. It can be top, bottom, top, bottom, top, bottom. That's still called next to each other. But putting them next to each other will create a chain. And you get points for having a long chain. At the end of the game, once you can't refill the center row, everyone will look through their chain and figure out how many points they have for each chain. And so the larger chains are worth a different set of points. For example, if you have just a small chain of two, that's only worth two points. So that's one card per each. But if you have a chain of 10, for example, that's 24 points each. I'm sorry, that's 24 points for the whole thing. So that's worth more points. So you want to try and be making more chains because then each card is going to be worth more points in the chain, which would be a good thing. If you get to have a 13-card chain, you're going to have a 40-point chain, which is worth a whole ton of points. I've only seen that happen once. <laughs> hard hard to do unless that's your only thing you're doing in the game, in which case you're probably not going to win anyway. But each of the cards, so let's talk about the different aspects of the card. The back of all the cards is actually a Z, because the way it works is that the cards serve both as your REM stack, where you put your points, your your chains, but if you take any card face down, that's your currency for buying more cards, because the you'll have two stacks. You'll have the stack of face-up cards and the stack of face-down cards. So any card face down, you'll pick up at the beginning of your turn, and then you'll play it face down still, and that'll count as one currency. The newest cards are worth five currency, five Zs in order to buy. The oldest cards are worth one currency to buy, one Z to buy. So as you buy cards at the end of your turn, they all shift down and become older and theoretically less expensive for the next player. So on your turn, you'll be able to spend those Zs, and you'll pick up your Z stack and play it in order to pick from the center of the board and buy other cards. So now then, I mentioned that each of the cards actually has two colors to it. For example, a yellow and a green. Really, it's not colors. They're different types of dreams. So for example, all of the yellow dreams are floating free. All of the purple dreams are shifting dreams. Each different color has a different sort of thing that they can do. They all have different abilities. So when you buy it from the center and you play it, you get to pick one of the two abilities printed on the card, and each card will have two abilities printed on it. And that would allow you to do such things such as 
copy someone else's dream, the top dream of one of their stacks, or it would allow you to pull out another card from your stack, or it allow you to shift around the cards in the center of the game, or it would allow you to get an extra Z card so you have more more points. So each one of those cards will let you do something different. And there are, in the basic version, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight different types of dreams. And the whole, I think actually there will always be eight different types of dreams in the deck. So you'll have to use those eight different types of dreams in different ways. And so sometimes you'll have these turns where you'll pull one dream, you'll rearrange the board, you'll pull another dream, you'll spend this one, you'll get another Z card. And so you might have some turns that let you buy five cards all at once. And those are always the type of turns that are sort of impressive <laughs> to be able to pull off these major, major turns. Um the game will end when you can no longer refill the center row. And at that point in time, again, you'll total up the amount of cards, that you, the amount of points you get from the chain. But on each turn, so you start the game with only one Z, one currency. The basic way you get extra currency, extra Zs, is at the beginning of your turn, you have an option just to get one more for free. The reason why you may not want to do that, though, is that at the end of the game, you lose one point for each Z that you have. So that's very much a push-pull between those two things about, well, do I want to take another Z or do I not want to take another Z and try running light? And I know that I've tried running the game both ways, where, especially in multiplayer, I've tried running both ways, trying to run a light game and try and have very few Zs at the end of the game or try and finish the game with you know 12 Zs at the end of the game where it's easier for me to absolutely buy everything and just have a ton of cards. Um, and I've managed to see that both types of ways are success. I don't think that the game is unbalanced to help one way or the other. So that's that was something that surprised me. I figured that you'd always want to not have a ton of Zs. But being that it's only one point lost at the end of the game for each Z you have, you may not want to do that. It's especially interesting because some of the cards, or one of the type of dreams called Night Terror, forces another player to discard a Z card one of the currency cards. And during a certain point in time of the game, you may decide, I don't really want to do that to them anymore because all that will do is it will give them a point at the end of the game. Oh, yeah. So it at the beginning of the game, you know, if that can be your first turn, so it means that they can potentially buy less and are a little bit more hampered in trying to build the economy to make big moves. But later on in the game, at one point in time, that's almost not worth it because all you're doing is you're giving them a point because then they don't lose a point for having that Z card at their stack at the end of the game. So I thought that was, it's interesting how they sort of tie that together. And I was, I was personally actually impressed that the game was balanced to make both of those into actual, you know, real solid methods of being able to win the game. So when you're playing multiplayer, that's really all there is to it is that you just continue going around and everyone pulls cards from the middle, drafts it into their own deck, does whatever the action is, and refills the center and then passes turn. You keep doing that until the game ends. Okay. Now you said that uh, when you're playing the game, the the position of the card, how it is, affects the price. Yes. So you're saying when you first start, you can only buy the cheapest card? You don't have any choice? Yes. Well, 
you start the game with one Z card. Everyone starts the game with one Z card. So your first turn, if you wanted, you could take an extra Z card and buy the card in the second slot if you wanted. So that would give you some choice for your first turn about which of the two you want to do. But your first turn also, you know, you have absolutely nothing in your REM stack, so you have no symbols to start building yourself off of. So for your first move, almost anything doesn't matter. You know, it's it's hard to really start predicting for your first move. I don't think there's any best card for your first move, although I'll admit that I'm a big fan of first move, deny them a Z card. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are some that don't work for your first move, but I mean, it's almost obvious that they just don't work. For example, you know, rearranging the cards in the dreamscape, just like it doesn't matter to you, it doesn't matter to them. Or replaying the dream under it, it's your first move. You can't do that. But on the other hand, if you look at the board and you see the whole board is filled with a replay card, I may as well grab that for my first turn. Why not? You know, I can I can yeah. still start comboing off of it. Gotcha. Okay. So that's when you're playing in multiplayer mode. There are some slight differences. Well, actually, before I get to that, no. Let's do it this way. So that's when you're playing the multiplayer mode. There are some slight differences when you're playing solo. And they've actually included in the game a variant, and they call it Virtual Dreaming. And I like a lot of the names of the cards because it's really quite in theme. You know, Lucid Dreaming and Dreamscape. They definitely have named things to remain quite in theme. And a lot of the card art is also this nice, very colorful pencil art. And it's very fantastic, the sort of card art that they're doing and the symbolism and the Z cards having the sheep marching to battle that you get to count as you're going to sleep. So they definitely have, they've, they've done a lot with the theme of the game of creating a virtual dreamscape here with what it is that they're doing with the, with the art. So it's definitely nice that they're doing it. So that was just a mention because a lot of the naming style and a lot of the art style have all really gone to enhance the theme of the game. But as I was saying, when you have the um, solo version of the game, so there's a couple changes that go on. So the biggest change is going to be how, really how the turn plays. The way it works is when you're playing multiplayer, instead of when you, when you finish your turn, you refill the dreamscape. So if any cards you bought, you fill back in those spaces or any cards you took, you'll fill back in those spaces. When you're playing virtual dream, when you're playing the solo mode, instead of refilling, you'll discard all of the dream cards in the dreamscape. You won't discard any cards that are Z cards in the dreamscape. There are some cards that you flip over cards in the dreamscape. When you flip it over, it becomes a Z card that you can buy for currency. Any Z cards left in the dreamscape are not going to be discarded, but any cards that are still face up are going to be discarded. You'll then discard, you'll then turn face up any of the Z cards. You'll refill the dreamscape and keep going. So essentially the idea is, is that all the other players bought all the other cards and flipped over all the Z cards. So the, the virtual players, and that's what they did. And you just sort of assume that. And you continue playing until you finish the game. And there's a scenario chart for 
what your score is. And so they've laid it out. If you get the, the highest possible rank they get is 55 and over that they named a planet after you. Um, <laughs> no idea. But apparently, if you get a 55 or over, you've done very good. So one of the other changes that has to be done is actually some of the cards don't really work. So I've mentioned now a couple times that I like the early game to attack another player and take away one of their Z cards. Quite obviously, that won't work if you're playing multiplayer, if you're playing solo because there's no other players to attack. Instead, what would happen for that specific card is that you would instead reveal the top card of the sleep deck, put it into the dreamscape, which are the available cards to buy, um, and then you have to discard one of your own Z cards. So instead of attacking another player, you're sort of attacking yourself. I haven't yet understood mm-hmm. why this is a good thing, except at the end of the game. And even at the end of the game, I'm not quite sure why it's a good thing. But you get another card to come out and go in the cheapest space, and then you lose a Z card. So if you have a lot of Z cards and you want to lose some of them at the end of the game, so then it's nice. And if you've already bought the one and you're looking for another cheap one, and it's going to be at random, so then it's nice. But, you know, for example, that one, it's it's harder to make use of it. Now, then. That's not necessarily not true for any of the other cards. Many of the cards are useful in specific scenarios and not useful in others. So like any other, but continuing with the sort of cards that have to be changed, cards that affect other players. So they would now, for example, affect the discard pile or they would swap. I wish I could shut that off. So, and for example, some cards which, you know, will swap out dream cards of the dreamscape or swap them around. So there's only three different types of dreams of the, so there's 11 different types of dreams that come with the game, including with the expansion. And so of them, there's only three that don't work. And so there's alternates that are sort of close to the sort of type of thing. The game does come with a specific card, which is just a reference card for the variant dreaming. So that tells you what those three cards do differently and what the, um, what the differences in how you play the game are just for, which just for the solo version. And I thought that was nice that they included that. I was definitely appreciative that they included that as a difference in the game. Um, so I think that the solo game, we were talking previously about whether or not the solo game does mimic a lot of the multiplayer, even though it has those changes to it, it really does feel pretty similar to the multiplayer. You can't really mess with someone else's deck. So you don't have to be concerned about that when you're playing the multiplayer game. You have to be concerned about someone else messing it up. You have complete control over it. So it stays pretty close to it in that you're trying to look at the board and um, establish a method of having your rem stack all line up. So it's pretty close to the idea of the multiplayer. But the problem I had with it is that you had to employ a very different strategy in the 
multi in the solo game than you did in multiplayer. Multiplayer was really about analyzing now on the board what is my best move. And also, is there anything that I want to deprive my opponent of getting? Especially in playing two-player, you want to be thinking about what do I want to deprive my opponent of and what do I want to be getting? When you're playing with more players, it's hard to really predict what do I want to deprive of. But that's what you want to do for multiplayer. When you're playing solitaire, and I, I keyed to this very quickly, I think I keyed to this very quickly, what you want to do is you want to have more turns. Because it, the deck is a timer. When you run out of a deck you run out of the game. And the more turns you get, the more cards you'll be able to pick back up. So, for example, I mentioned that Z cards don't get discarded. So if you're get, if you're trying to get a chain of cards that you flip over cards in the dreamscape in the center, those are really powerful multiplayer. Because those cards don't discard. If they weren't ones that went on your chain, you don't really care about them. They may make it a little bit more expensive for your next set of cards, but they give you more turns. And more turns would be more time to get more resources and more purchasing ability. So mm-hmm. getting the ability to have more chances to buy the game is really powerful. And, I mean, also similarly, being able to reserve cards, or, I'm sorry, being able to, to rearrange cards is very powerful. Reserving cards isn't as important in the solo game. But anything that you can do to be able to get more turns is very useful. Also, you don't want... In this game, you really want to have as few Z cards as you need. You don't want to constantly be... I mean, there's one of the cards, the Night Terror, is get it, you have to give back one of your Z cards, discard it. You don't ever want to do that, because if you had to take a card and then discard a card, unless you made good use of it throughout the game... You didn't. You you basically had one turn less. Mm-hmm. You basically had one turn Gone. less. Oh. Um. So that wasn't a, that you know. So it becomes that you want to be able to really maximize your turns and be able to play as well as you can. And I'll tell you, when I've been playing for myself with this, I've been getting points in the fifty to fifty-five range you know, the really high up there. And I'm not sure if that's just because I'm not sure if the, the score range is low. I don't think I'm playing incorrectly, but you know, I'm, I'm getting differently. I'm getting differently ranked. And I don't think, I'm not sure if it's just because I, I keyed the idea of you want to get more turns when you're playing and not treat it like you're playing a multiplayer game and not just analyze it. Try and get those cards flipped over. Try and make sure that you have cards left in the deck. Try and slow down the game timer as much as you can. Now, that I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because it's still pretty close. It's just that you want to overemphasize a couple of your cards, but still pretty close. And I mean, there's still some cards that are really valuable. For example, there's one card, the yellow, Lucid Dreaming, that lets you pull out from your deck and put it back on top. And so those can help you make really big chains. And so similarly to how you would want to be trying to make those connections when you're doing multiplayer, you still want to be making similar connections when you're doing solitaire. And so I did like how that all came through, but there was that one strategic difference. Um, one last thing that I want to mention, I've mentioned now that there's an expansion included in the game. The expansion is that there's three mm-hmm. alternate dream types then in the game. And so you get another card deck, which I think is almost as thick as the original card deck. And the way you play is that you pick 
one or more of the new dreams. So let's say that I want to play with Empowered Dreaming. You will look through your card deck and you'll find all of the Empowered Dreaming cards and you'll take those out and you'll put them in your main deck. You'll then pick any one of the other dream types that's already in there. So let's say that you want to pull out that attack card, the Night Terror card, and you go through the whole deck and you'll pull out all of the Night Terror, which will be some of the ones you just put in, actually. Because, you know, there's an even distribution for everything. But you'll then go pull out all of the Night Terror from from the cards and put that back in the cards that you're not using. So you'll always have eight different dream types. And that works the same solitaire, uh, that works the same solitaire. So if you wanted solitaire to have no special cards, you could add in, you know, two, it's two because one of the special ones, but you could add in two, the, the empowered dreaming and paradigm shift and then take out night terror and collective dream. And then all of the cards play exactly like they do in multiplayer. And really, that's just, I mean, that's a perfectly va- valid thing to do and perfectly valid way to play. And just avoid that. There's no reason to it. Um, one other negative I did have about the game, when you're calculating chain length, and when you have a chain, the chain actually works either top or bottom. Like I've said, you have the cards with a top and a bottom to it. And a chain works even if you had to switch to the other side of the card. It doesn't have to be matched up even. So, you know, you may have a chain that goes up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. And you may actually be having two chains going on at once. You may have one chain going along the bottom side and one chain going along the top side. And each of those chains is a different set. So a chain of two is not, well, a chain of four, for example, is not worth four points. It's worth six points. This I found very hard to do without a pen and paper. <laughs> I need to get a pen and paper and I'll go through the other one. I'll be like, okay, that's a chain of two, two. That's a chain of three, three, chain of six, chain of seven, chain of two, chain of two. I look through and I'll go back to my, my reference, either in the rule book or print on the box or print on the card. I'll be like, okay, two, that's two points. Four, that's six points. And then I'll total up the points. And so I found that you need a card in order to do this. For anyone who listens to me that needs something Shabbos friendly, I found that that is a problem when you're trying to score without using patent paper. You may want to pack a patent paper in the box or make sure you have mm-hmm. one available wherever you go because I feel like you do need a patent paper to be able to keep score well in this game. Because yeah, because otherwise it's it's a lot of tricky overlapping math yeah, you're doing. It it is. I mean, it's simple math, but it's that overlapping is, is hard. And one other thing I'll note is that under the rules of the game, your rem stack, which is where your um, where your chains go, you're supposed to keep that all in one deck. Whenever I've played, because you want to know what you have in your deck, I've already always spread that out, so it looks sort of like a cards are a little bit on top of each other so you can see the colors of each card and so i've sort of spread it Mm -hmm. out so i can sort of see where i'm going all my other opponents can also see where it's got where where, what i have so there's no secret information there but i found that a lot easier and more fun to play when everyone can see everything Hmm, okay now, for the solo game, you said that basically each each turn you're discarding all the five cards in the middle that they you didn't, didn't buy. buy unless they got flipped over to show Z side. Uh, yeah, but it sounds like then probably the game is about ten turns total, roughly, maybe a little more if you flip did a lot of flipping. Well, how many cards are in the deck? Because there's fifty. It's fifty cards in the box, is what I read. Uh, fifty-two. Fifty-two, 52 cards. Box. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it's it's not a long game at well, all. Is no, it? it's actually less than ten because each turn you have the option to buy some Z cards to take Z cards as currency. Um, but you're correct; it's not that long of a game. It's not. It takes I think about twenty minutes to play solo. It doesn't take very long at all. Wow. Okay. I mean, even multiplayer it takes thirty to forty five minutes. Gotcha. Okay. Now, so so this. This game, you know, I can't help but compare it to, to Onirim because it's about dreams. Um, does it feel like Onirim in any way? Not at all. Like that? In Onirim, you're trying yeah. to make sets of cards in order to unlock uh, unlock doors and avoid bad cards. But here, you you know what's going into your hand. There's no surprises about stuff coming out of your hand. And you have complete control over what you want to buy and when, and you may choose, I don't want to buy anything this turn. I wouldn't recommend it because it's wasting a turn, <laughs> but you may not want to because you don't want to ruin a great, great chain you have going on. Right. Okay. So no, there's no, there's no real surprises. There's no surprises to your draw, unlike an Onirim. But I mean, it's the same gotcha, size okay. card because it's only it's a hundred hundred card. It's it's two fifty two card decks with f- six punch tokens at a rule book. So it's a pre- it's still a small game. It's not as small as Onirim, I think, or it's actually a different. It's actually just mm-hmm. a different size, but about as small as Onirim. Um, and yeah, but also the card art on it is very different looking than Onirim. Onirim has sort of the um, different sort of stuff. It's more like a Dixit. It's it's dark, more like yeah. a Dixit sort of card art to Onirim, and this one is more strange looking people doing things. It's not completely stylized people. It looks very different. It doesn't, it looks, um, happier is not quite the right word because it's not happy. More childlike. Well, I mean, but the, yeah, more childlike. Onirim looks a little dark and creepy and this one looks more, more inviting. Well, is it child? Is it kid friendly? What's the age range for the game? 10 plus. Indeed, ten plus. Okay. Okay. One. Now, I am looking at the their website, Undyne Studios, mm-hmm. and they actually have three different games out, and they all support solitaire play. Cool. Mm-hmm. They have Project Dreamscape Tower, which is a one to four player game, and Baldrick's Tomb, which is a one to four player game. Cool. And I've not played any yeah. of the other ones. I haven't either, but they all sound neat. They do indeed. They all look neat, yeah. They do indeed. All right. Any any final thoughts Um, on the game? One thing that I just want to mention that I know that I mentioned the 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 idea behind the game is that you know you're playing in a shared dreamscape, but I mentioned already that you don't really have so much control over the other players' decks when you're playing multiplayer. To a certain degree, it's almost solitaire. That's not such a problem. But you're not really interacting with the other people, especially when you're playing with four player. You can't really predict what another player is going to need and what they're not going to need. You just sort of have to figure out what you're doing on your turn when it's your turn. So for better or worse, you play it almost like you play exactly solitaire, just without the idea of trying to store cards. If you forget that whole strategy idea, the solitaire and the multiplayer are the same, almost to the detriment of the multiplayer, because you're in a shared dreamscape but you're not really affecting the other players other than clearing the cards out of the middle. There's no real strong player interaction going on. 
That said, I didn't really feel like it needed a strong set of player interaction, especially for a shorter, briefer game. I didn't need to be really messing with the other player. The game didn't need that. It plays just fine. It plays quite, it, I, I enjoy playing a multiplayer, um, being able to, you know, just go through and, and play through a whole deck. That said, I actually kind of prefer more solo because there's no downtime. There's nothing involved waiting for the player to make the decision. And the game plays very similar. I have a problem with solo that it seems like this strategy that you want to slow the game down makes the game a bit easier to score high um, to a degree that I don't think I've ever tried removing that card that lets you flip cards over in the deck. I'm not sure what would happen if you did that. Maybe I should give that a shot. But that strategy makes it different than multiplayer, but I don't think it's to the detriment. And when you're playing multiplayer, you sometimes have to sit and wait for it to come back around to your turn. It's not a lot of downtime, though. It's a very fine point. There's not a lot of downtime even when you're playing multiplayer. And I still do like it multiplayer, and I do like it solitaire. So it's a it's a pretty good game. I do like it. Hmm, nice. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, it sounds really interesting. I, I'm, I'm going to look into getting this, seriously. And it seems like it'll be something we'd enjoy playing at home as a family, too. Very cool. Maybe I'll send you my copy. No, nope. you can do that, too. <laughs> All right. Um, shall we go ahead and do our uh, thing? Ah, yes. Our great That's debate. Great debate. Let me pull it up. All right. Would you like the... I think that uh, for the last one... I believe that you actually got a quite a number of votes. When last I looked at it, you got five votes for seaweed as opposed to yeah, eight seaweed. for Kevin's, which was fairy. So I'm not quite <laughs> sure if this is because people don't like fairies or people just, you know, always vote for Albert. <laughs> They're my sock puppets, you know. <laughs> um, but since you lost, um, I guess that I get to pick whether we go first or second. But I'm the one looking at the words. Oh, you see, wait, you see the word? Well, I guess I'll do a random word for you and you'll do a random word for me. How does that sound? Yeah. Did anybody volunteer words this time? No, still no volunteers to my knowledge. Still no words. Uh, I'm going to start sending the the random word generators dice every week, every episode. (laughs) (laughs) That company's going to get dice in the mail. They're not going to know why. All right, so I'm going to go first. (laughs) And I'm going to tell you what your word is, Albert. Your word is metal detector. Metal detector. Okay, random word generator. So I actually get to think up on it while you Yes, talk. you do. And uh, do you need the link to the random word generator? No, I've I've got one here. There's a there's plenty of them. Generate random words. Oh, these aren't necessarily nouns. I'll find the first noun. Flash. Your word is flash. All right. I'm ready when you are then. Oh, now you find the timer. Google timer. Reset. Okay, I'm you ready? ready? You need to stopwatch. Go. So, I've always been a big fan of DC Comics. One of the reasons why I like Sentinels of the Multiverse is because I'm a superheroes fan. And The Flash is one of the best superheroes out there with the incredible awesome speed to cut through time and space. If you could have The Flash involved in this and start bringing in superheroes, especially one who can cut through multiple dimensions and dreamscapes and worlds, throwing it all in there would just make superheroes Stop. awesome. 
<laughs> I was supposed to stop you at 20 seconds, wasn't yes. I? Yes. How much time did you give me? <laughs> you got a bonus 4.9 seconds. Oh, well, that's no one's fault but your own. <laughs> I was just enjoying listening to The Flash. <laughs> I'm wondering where you're going with them. I guess we'll never know now. All right. Are you ready for Metal Detector? Uh, sure. Go ahead. Um, go. All right. So this game needs metal detectors. And the reason for that is because you're dreaming and, and that's, that's dangerous. When you're trapped in a dream, if you wake up suddenly, that that could lead to all sorts of horrible things like heart attacks and whatnot. And do you want your alarm watch to wake you in the middle of a dream? No. So this game needs a metal detector in it to make sure nobody's got watches on. Stop. Basically. <laughs> I, I got a 10 second rebuttal. <laughs> do you need yeah, it? Yeah, I want to say something about that. <laughs> okay, go. Whenever you're ready. Go. I have a feeling that you probably would have a big problem in case your watches are plastic and wouldn't work in metal detector. And you may have a problem putting a metal detector inside the box. Okay. Oh. <laughs> Just to directly respond. That, that that's fine. I'm not allowed to make any rebuttals, but that that's okay. Uh, I don't have to since most people since most people are your sock puppet anyway. You're just gonna win no matter what I say. Grumble, grumble, grumble. <laughs> okay, that was a good debate. That was a good debate. Not only was it a good debate, Do it was a great more, debate. The great debate. It was a great debate. Do we need more metal detectors, or do we need the flash? That, to your listeners, is the question. I wasn't sure what you. you meant when you gave me that noun <laughs> flash. I was like, do you mean like a flash in the you pan know, or the superhero or what? I don't know where. I assumed a like flash photography. Oh, okay. Flash. Well, I definitely like took a, it in a different direction. Camera flash. That's always fun to do. Yeah. Yep. That, well, that's the thing. It's just a noun. You go with whatever you want. All right, and now for a special guest surprise. After we just talked about Project Dreamscape, I have here the designer of Project Dreamscape, Sarah Reed. How are you doing today, Sarah? I'm okay, and I'm co-designer because I designed it with my husband. Co-designer. Yes. Sarah and Will Reed. Yep. And how did that work out? It works out great. Um, we have a pretty, you know, very good relationship, and we love doing different hobbies together. We've had several different hobbies over the years. And designing games together just worked really well because he's got his strengths and I've got my strengths and we fill each other's weaknesses and create a hole. Did you guys know where your strengths would lie before you started these projects? Um, or Yeah, some of the things we did know and some of the things developed as we started working together and uh, quickly, it was pretty quickly, we realized who was better at what things. Uh, one of the things that really makes a dividing line is my husband is legally blind. So there's a lot of the graphic design and stuff that he just can't do. And that's one of my biggest roles is actually making the prototypes and making the physical copies, writing notes and things during play tests. All right. And did how was he involved in all of that? I mean, how legally blind is he? 
Um, he can use reader programs on the computer to uh, enlarge text, and he can um, see the larger text, but he's the mechanics guy. He is the one who's come up with most of our game designs at its core, like that really rough, you know, diamond in the rough type of thing. And then I come in and I shine it up, polish it, and we then work together moving forward from there. So you typically come in after the playtesting has been done, or you help out on playtesting also, or at I what am, point in time do you come in? Yeah, I am the first wave of playtesting, so he will come up with a design, he'll think about it for however long, then he'll talk to me about it, uh, and I'll give him my feedback. He'll usually think about it a bit more based on that just initial feedback I've given him, and then he'll start writing out notes. Once he's done writing out his notes, I take that first draft of notes, and I go through it myself. Uh, again, it's the polishing part of it, and I start making that note page into a rules page and then I um, go from there creating the prototype the physical component part and then we play test it together we always play test all of ours just two of us until we feel good both of us feel good about it and then we take it to other people I assume that means that all of your games are going to be at least two player friendly yes and uh that's kind of the thing for us is we, most of our gaming is two player. Um, we do have friends. We just don't get together with them very often. So definitely as going forward, I imagine hopefully we'll be able to publish more. They will always be two player friendly. Mm -hmm. And I believe that all of your published games are also one player friendly. Is that correct? Well, we're trying. We only have this project dreamscape so far as our first published game. Um, and honestly, it wasn't something we thought of in the first place. But as I've gotten, um, you know, more into BGG, uh, Board Game Geek, and into the community on Twitter, I started realizing that there was this one player, you know, population out there. And I wanted to tap into that because it, it just, I don't know, it always feels good to me to be able to give something to a group that may not have as many choices. I still don't think our game, like, is, well, I guess you're the reviewer here. I'm not going to say whether I think it's great, but... <laughs> I do feel confident that our one player experience is good. Um, so that's, and then I got a lot of help. It was actually, I think initially, and I'm blanking on his name and I am so sorry, but when I first posted to the design forum in Board Game Geek, a solo player came up first and said, Hey, I'll play test this. And so he actually helped us, um, initially develop some solo rules for it. Mm -hmm. And I wish, yeah, can't remember right now, but, um, he was the one who helped us get started on thinking about doing that. And how hard was it to work on the design just from the beginning of it? What went into the design process? The design process for Project Dreamscape was one of the fastest we had ever done because up to that point, we had been working for almost a year and a half on a previous card game and we were burnt out on it. It was, it was becoming this big monstrous thing that just wasn't working right. Um, and it was going somewhere, but we weren't sure where it was. So we took a break and within just like three days, Will came up with Project Dreamscape and it took about three months of play testing and it was done. It, it just came out so short and sweet that I didn't actually change much uh, or give much feedback on changing what Will's original design was. Did he also originally, if this game has 11 different dream types, were all those also in the original design? 
The original design was eight, but during playtests, there were some comments about how I wish, you know, playtests were like, I wish we could do something a little bit different or, you know, do something a little bit this way. And so we'll have the idea for three more dream types. And when we actually got to talking to Ben Haskett about actually publishing this, um, then we started working with him on the details on how we could make it. The core game still works best with the eight original dream types, but being able to provide that little variation um, so that people can take out certain elements they don't like and put in different elements. And it, we were just very grateful that it worked out with the Kickstarter to be able to include all of the 11 dream types. And the 11 Dream Types are also in the retail version of the game, correct? Yeah. Yes. We. I'm a huge Kickstarter uh, board game backer. I, I'm really big into it. And I have just, for me personally, come to really like when the Kickstarter makes the best version of the game for everybody. I am not a fan of Kickstarter exclusives that are gameplay focus like it actually is gameplay impactful Mm -hmm. if it's cosmetic that's fine you can make it exclusive all you want if it's just cosmetic so like for us we had a play mat that is exclusive to the kickstarter and it's nice it's beautiful but it's not necessary to play the game Mm -hmm. and you mentioned ben haskett i believe just make it clear for our listeners who's that he is the he is our um publisher um, he, we were really grateful he was able to join our game design group. And pretty much the first time he play tested the game, he stood up and said, I'm going to help you publish this. Because up to that point, we were like, okay, we're just going to make a couple of games, maybe put them on the Game Crafter, because that's what we're used to for making our prototypes. But we didn't want to get into business. We want to be designers. I have a full-time job. And with Will and his, his vision disabilities, and I've got some health issues myself, We weren't up to the task of doing the business side of publishing, but Ben has has had experience having his own games published by other companies and then publishing his own game on Kickstarter. He felt confident that he could help bring our game to reality, which is what he did. And how much of it did you guys have when you gave it over to Ben? How At what point in time did he come in? He came in on some of the earliest playtests of the game once we brought it to the game group and um for us we did very rough very rough prototypes we don't do art i pull stuff from the web that's free um and so he went through and he helped revise the rules and make it look pretty because i didn't have any idea of layout other than text down a page i mean my prototype rules are very simple so he made that really nice and clean and then he did the graphic design for the card so he'd lay out the components on the card now we were able to work with another local friend um who did the art for it julie okahara um we interestingly met her through our other hobby. Uh, we're also into Lego. And so her and her husband are part of our Lego club. And we started talking to them about board games. They kind of like board games. And so one night we got together, we played some games. They also brought their art books to show us what they had been drawing. And Julie's art, as soon as I saw it, I was like, we have to somehow get her to do the art for Project Dreamscape because it is just perfect. And um, so... 
we got working with her, brought her in. She did the art. Johnny helped with some of the design on the front of the cover. And it was a real local team effort um, to bring it all together. But it was really Ben who was able to run the Kickstarter and do all the manufacturing and then distribution and, and take care of all those nuts and bolts um, that makes it real and happen. It's pretty cool that you were able to keep such a core local group to be able to keep all that together. Yeah, that was, it was really nice. And then for another local aspect, we had a deluxe wooden box for the higher pledge level. Again, limited to the Kickstarter, but it was just a fancy wooden box. But um, uh, Ben was able to work with another local artist. My uh, brain's not working tonight. Um, I think his first name is Barry, but he does a lot of woodworking. And he worked with Ben on Ben's previous Kickstarter tower. So got another local person in to help. So yeah, it was a real big push to get us all local because we were all meeting together and, and talking. And for me and Will, we aren't able to go to conventions. So we have to make the most of what it is we have locally. Um, and I think we got together a good project. So tell me about the art. You said that you saw it in Julie Okahara's notebook and you just felt like it had to be in the game. What does the art mean to you? Why did you feel it had to be in the game? She has this really cool, surreal is the first word that comes to mind, and whimsical. And um, maybe it's also because I do have, um, I've watched a lot of anime over the years, and so it has that kind of wide-eyed anime aspect um and and she is of japanese descent so that kind of you know makes sense but she also has some american sensibilities but she has these really unique things that she puts into her art that just make me think um dreamy like you're just it's it's so surreal it's not reality and you're just going through and exploring different worlds and her focus is strongest on characters and so it was really nice working with her because she draws such strong characters and then I feel nice because I feel good because I was able to um, help her develop more of the backgrounds because she had most of her art was singular characters with a little bit of scenery but not full scope pictures like she had drawn for our art so it was really nice um, working with her and challenging her to also explore new areas were you the one who designed the whole layout of the picture or did she come up with that um at first we had some minor you know like simple suggestions to see where she could go and it wasn't quite where we wanted so will and i sat down and i think it was kind of half and half for each of the pictures i came up with ideas for some and will came up with ideas for others but will and i worked together because we had designed the name and what the ability did and we had previously very simple clip art that was kind of suggestive of a picture and so we took all of that plus just some crazy ideas and um wrote like two or three sentence descriptions and then we gave those to her and then she came back and we had very little feedback on how to change anything that she drew because she just took what we gave her and just ran with it very cool and uh do you guys still play the game even now you've published it or are you tired with it at this point no in fact we just played it the other day and i crushed will it felt really good (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep, I I played Night Terror the whole game, and he just had no power to buy anything from the row. So I just had this a deck uh, stack twice the height of his, so he just had no chance. Yeah, I played the game the uh, other night with my wife, and she demanded that we swap out one of the expansions for Night Terror and remove it from the game just for that reason. 
Yeah, it, well, uh, we put in a lot of different sensibilities, different play styles, and Night Terror is definitely towards that more aggressive play styles. And so for the Care Bears out there, we definitely recommend taking out Night Terror. Huh. I wouldn't say she's much of a Care Bear, but I think she just want to try something different than continually seeing it over and over again. There's that too. Um, yeah, I definitely thought that was neat that you guys have those different sort of uh, dreams that you guys put into your decks. Is there any one of the dreams that you guys prefer to have in your deck? Will's very versatile, so I don't know that there's anything that he prefers, although he is much better at using floating free than I am. My brain doesn't quite wrap around the concept. I'm much more linear in my thinking. So I love things like lucid dreaming and shifting dreams those are probably my two favorites i love to be able to reserve and i love to be able to rearrange to make the most out of my money uh so that i'm often able to clear the dreamscape on my turn by being able to buy all the cards or reserve them um and those are the combos that i typically go for so just to make it clear what's going on with those two cards, <laughs> you're able to rearrange the dreamscape, which are the cards in the center of the board, so that you can change how much the cards cost. So you'll buy one, you'll me- rearrange it, and have the other more expensive cards now be less expensive. And then when you buy your next card, you can reserve some of the more expensive ones, and later on in the game, they'll only cost one. Yes. And do you guys always swap around what's in your deck, or do you keep your deck pretty stable? We don't play too often, so I have to admit, um, since we got our production copy, I don't actually think we've played with the expansion uh, cards yet. So yeah, so far we've um, only played it with the... Um, the base, the base set as the, for the production copy. Um, everything got fully play tested. Um, I just, I think for me, we play tested that core deck so much that I'm just so <laughs> used to it. Um, and it just fits how I think that I just haven't really experimented too much, but we will because it's on my, uh, 10 by 10 list. So <laughs> it will go. get played more. Mm-hmm. There you go. Um, do you have a favorite piece of art from the game? Oh, man. I do know that Will's favorite piece is the shifting dream with the magician, with the cups. Um, as for mine, I, I actually, unfortunately, this is not a card art, but my favorite piece is the art that got put on the play mat because it's a bunch of dreamers laying in the grass like lying in a bed of grass that actually has a blanket pulled up that looks like grass. And then this big dream above them with the sun and the moon playing cards and she made it look like they're playing project dreamscape so um that happens to be my favorite piece but for card art i am fond of lucid dreaming um that was my idea for the card so i happen to like that one a lot too what does lucid dreaming look like i'm not recalling it um, in my head it's a it's a forest that has a lot of mushrooms and there's two identical people. Uh, one's asking the other directions. It's basically like asking yourself, where do I need to go? And the other one is pointing down one of the paths. So are you working on any other games at the moment? Oh, yeah. Um, we're working on a couple. Um, one's called Until Proven Guilty and it's... Um, where all the players are criminals and they're being brought to court, but you are trying to use your influence and pull to be the one who gets off free and everybody else goes to jail. 
So it, it's kind of fun. It's it has a weird long history. It was a different theme before in a much simpler game, but we got some good advice, and so so far it's going well. I, I'm we need some more play testing to see because right now it's a okay game, but we don't want to spend our time on just an okay game. We want to you know if it's not going to work out, we sh- we want to just drop it. But we also have a, a bigger dice and card game called In the Ruins, um, where you are digging in the ruins for different artifacts and you're building a tableau in front of you of stuff that you've um, unearthed and you're researching it and then you put it on display and when you put on display you actually get different abilities that let you manipulate the dice so and are you ever thinking about doing a lego themed game always think about it but then we know how hard it is to licensing that so far other than using lego pieces while we play board games um really haven't thought about mixing the two because licensing issues oh yeah lego doesn't like to work with anybody else but i don't blame them because they had their own run of board games a couple years ago and it didn't do well but honestly it's because they didn't market it well they made only little kid games and nothing that could bridge that gap of being fun there were a few that were fun for the teens and older but most of them were really simplistic you know really young like five to eight or even younger some of them um so they tried really hard the other thing is they inundated the market where they'd come out like their normal sets where they do six or seven sets in a line they did the same thing with the board games. They came out with six or seven games all at the same time. And it just flooded the market and people didn't know what to do with them. So unfortunately, they already failed on the board game front. <laughs> I don't think they're going to go back at it. Not going to try it again? In ca- in, I doubt. In case it's not clear for those people why I'm asking, um, I noted that your avatar is a Lego person. Actually, no, that's a – wait, which av- – um, on, on BGG, on Board Game Geek. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's my um, Lego Mini-Me. So one of the things that's very common to do for Lego fans is to create your own little minifigure that looks like you. I happened to get away pretty easy, and I just found one of the Hermione Granger minifigures from Harry Potter that looks pretty well like me, except I need to find a new face now that they're making more women with glasses, um, more female figures with glasses. I need to find one of those faces and put it in there. But otherwise, the hair is about right, and I love the color blue. So um, that's, yeah, that's me. So it's not a custom design. You just took some took another piece. Yeah. Now, some people do need to go through and take pieces from different minifigures to craft themselves. I just got kind of lucky or lazy, depending on how you want to put it. (laughs) And you're definitely a Lego hobbyist also? Yes. Um, So I run, I help run the board game design group, but I also help run our local Lego club. It's mostly adults, but we've got some teens and some kids who join. I'm the secretary, so I help uh, schedule meetings and keep the membership all organized. Will is the vice president of the club, um, so he's in there pretty much filling the gaps where anybody um, needs. So We're kind of a small club, um, but once a year um, in November, the local railroad museum, because Sacramento is a big train place. There's just trains all over the place. Um, And so the railroad museum does their 
toy train holiday event every um every November after Thanksgiving and they invite the model railroaders, but they also invite us and we do a Lego train layout. And the cool thing is with Lego, you can do something new every year. So we always challenge ourselves to come up with different themes. Like one time when the superheroes were brand new, we did a superhero city. So we had, um, Will built this big, um, stadium and we had the Hulk fighting the Wampa from Star Wars in the middle of the stadium. (laughs) So it was fun. It was fun. So we always do something fun every year. And do you find that there's any crossover between those two hobbies? Um, We do find a few Lego fans that play board games, kind of like finding um, Julie and Johnny who like do art and board games and Lego. Um, Not so much the other way, but I've run into a few people on Twitter and I think on BGG that are board game fans and also love Lego. But for the most part, I wouldn't say it crosses over too much. Do you wish there was more crossover? Um, no, because sometimes it's good to keep the hobbies separate. I worry that we'd spend even more money than we already do on two very expensive hobbies as they stand. So um, it's fine the way it is. I hear that. And are you an, are you a solo player also? Do you play solo board games? Not really. Um, other than when we started playtesting, I'm... I did a lot of playtesting on the solo play for Project Dreamscape. But other than playing um, games on my iPad, um, which is one of the main reasons I got it, was so that I could play board games when, you know, at work or whatever. Other than those experiences, I'm not much of a solo uh, board gamer. So what's currently on your 10 for 10 lists? Oh, let me see. Um, it's on the office door behind me. <laughs> Hold on. I know we put Project Dreamscape on there. Um, we really got into uh, a deck building kick. So Dominion is on there. Uh, Ascension, Tonto Core, um, uh, Manhattan Project. I'm trying to remember. We tried to pick a, a, a mix of more medium to light games because this year we're trying to buy a house and move. So I knew we weren't going to have... Yeah, thank you. Uh, we're still working on it. <laughs> but I knew I didn't want to plan to have a lot of heavy games. So I think we also put like Star Realms on there. And that's why we put Project Dreamscape. Um, I think Manhattan Project is probably our heaviest game because I didn't want to do too many Euros. So that's all I can think of off the top of my head. Mix it up. And you're doing this yeah. all with Will? Yeah, most of it, it's with Will. I put a few things on there that I can play with some people online. So, like, I put Ticket to Ride on there. Um, last year, at the end of the year, when I got the Ticket to Ride app, that was the first time I've ever had a chance to play it. Because with Will's Vision, we can't play any route-building games. The map is too detailed. He can't see where things are. So, like, we have to avoid area control, uh, route-building, anything with too much hidden information um, that kind of stuff. So, but, um, I found some friends online on through BGG and we play Ticket to Ride through the app. And so I put that on my 10 by 10 list so I could actually experience the classic for the first time. Very neat. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like Will would like a Quadropolis, one that I've been enjoying recently. Actually, we just saw a review of it and he said, yeah, that he really, uh, would like that. Um, I'm not so sure for me about the puzzly aspects, but I think it's one we're going to check out if we have the opportunity. Very cool. Yeah. And are you also involved in some other podcasts or some other projects around BGG? 
Uh, yeah, so um, the All Us Geeks uh, channel, um, they do the game of crowdfunding. And I got on with Jeff uh, several years ago now to do draft picks because I'm a huge supporter of Kickstarter. And he was too. We started doing a podcast together. Well, he started with somebody else first, but that didn't quite work out. And then so he got me on there. And we did it like um, the football draft picks where he'd pick some projects and I'd pick some projects and we'd put them up against each other and see who did better on different metrics, like who got more backers, raised more money, um, overfunded by certain percentages. But then Jeff had a harder and harder time keeping up with it with everything else he was doing for the channel. So um, I got a new co-host, uh, Jacob Kuhn. Um, and we were doing it for quite a while, but we had some challenges because he's in Germany and I'm in California and there's like a nine hour time difference. So we were trying to record Saturdays where it'd be 7 a.m. for me and 4 p.m. for him. So we were doing that for quite a while, but a couple weeks ago, we changed it to try to do a more blog version. So if you go to allusgeeks.com, you can look in the draft picks um, and we have a written format now that we're trying. And so far it's working out well. I do miss the back and forth talking that you can get with a podcast. I kind of lose a little bit of that with writing, um, but it's working out well so far. And why'd you decide to go into Kickstarter reports like that? Um, I don't know. I just... I always really like to talk about Kickstarter. So when Jeff gave, uh, he was looking for a new co-host. So I just jumped at the opportunity and never done a podcast before that. Um, and so it just sounded like a lot of fun and it is a lot of fun. Um, it just right now for timing purposes, it's just really hard to keep the podcast up. So I assume that when you guys start up Project Dreamscape, you're already pretty, pretty familiar with how to run a good Kickstarter. Yes, yes. And um, Ben was familiar too. And we still got a lot of advice. We asked uh, Jamie Stegmeyer to look over it, but I read all read his blog anyways. Um, and so yeah, we, we had a good wealth of resources to, uh, to use to utilize, as well as personal experiences. We know what it's like to be backers. So we want we know how we want to be treated. So we want to make sure we can do the best we can to treat our backers that way too. Because Backers are people. They're not numbers. So, you know, treat them as best as you can. What was the best start about having that Kickstarter going? Wow. Um, there were so many great things about doing a Kickstarter. Um, I think it's community for me. It's being able to meet and talk to so many people. Um, and it was just great to see the support that we got. Um, you know, we had about, I think, 800 backers and it was just, um, it just blew my mind that 800 people would come out and support little old us. You know, it, it was just, it was overwhelming and heartwarming at the same time, um, that people saw what we were doing and believed in us enough to support us. I lost your audio again. Okay. I guess the only other thing is I'm actually going to make it to a con, a con, uh, convention I can talk um, April what am I trying to think? 2nd so I, I'll talk about that 
Um, so I'm actually going to be able to make it to a convention only because it's in my city. Um, and it's a Conquest Sac or Sacramento in California. Um, and the convention itself is um, April 1st through the 3rd. I'm only going to be able to be there Saturday um, from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. I'll be playtesting um, Until Proven Guilty, uh, the next card game that we're really trying to move forward with. And then from 1, I think, till 2, we're going to do a little game designer panel um, where me, Will, and a couple other designers are going to get up there and talk about what it is to do game design. And this is our first um, try at doing kind of an unpub area in this uh, in conquest and we're hoping it goes well and then we'll continue to do it in uh, future conventions are you guys working together with unpub to arrange that well it's not i guess it's not exactly an unpub it's just no it's just us we're working with the convention uh the people who run the convention um i think we're actually calling our little area game labs or something like that um so it's not exact, it's not a true unpub, um, but we're trying to get a little uh, room or area where people can come and play unpublished games, help us, you know, play test it. Because Conquest is mostly about just a weekend of playing games. And so we're hoping to capitalize on there being a lot of gamers there. And hopefully some of them will want to come in and take a look at what we're doing and give us some feedback. Some multiplayer gamers, I assume. Yeah. Are you thinking about also trying to look for um, solo play variants for that game? We were thinking about it, and this one is really difficult because this is a take-that-style card game mm -hmm. and really not sure how at all right now to make that one player. But it is something we're now keeping in mind for everything that we design. If we can think of a solo play way to play it solo we want to develop that and work on it as best as we can it just comes down to certain mechanics don't work well for solo play because it's really hard to do take that when there isn't another player to take that <laughs> right because you need for a take that game you typically have to have someone responding right. you can't just have no one to respond to Right. Um, but it's another really fast, light, social, not social, but it's supposed to be like a 20 minute little filler game. So, um, so we're just seeing where it goes. But yeah, it works better with more players. Um, and unfortunately, just haven't been able to figure out a solo play for that one. Do you guys want to bring it to Kickstarter also? If it works out, that's what we're working with Ben is uh, we're helping him with his designs. He's helping us with ours. And just together as a group, we're going to take games to Kickstarter. Um, and so as he moves forward, and I think he's working on one. I don't remember which one he's he's picked up right now to really try to focus on. But if he's able to take that to Kickstarter, we'll help him out. Um, I can do a lot of the social outreach on Twitter and Board Game Geek. Um, and, I mean, he can too, but I've got a, a pretty good size following um, that follows me for Kickstarter purposes since I do tweet out a lot about Kickstarter. So um, it's definitely, like I said, a group effort. Um, and as far as I can tell, I really, we really like working with Ben. I, hopefully he likes working with us. He keeps talking <laughs> to us. I, I assume so. And um, as far as I, I'm concerned if this is how we're able to publish our games, that's fine with us. Um, we don't need big distribution. We're just happy that we're making games, having fun, and being able to get something fun onto other people's tables. And connecting with all the community at large. 
Exactly. And I just love community. I just love being able to share in any way that we can this great hobby um, to be able to bring people together. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me on. My pleasure. And thank you to all the listeners for listening in. All right. Well, dear listeners, thank (laughs) you so much for tuning in. And I'm going to go listen to Tornado rapidly coming my way. Enjoy. Be safe. (laughs) Good night, all. All right. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. We love feedback, so we love hearing from you. You can reach me at Julius at OnePlayerPodcast.com or JLBird on BGG. And Albert can be reached at Albert at OnePlayerPodcast.com or Fractaloon on BGG. Our website is OnePlayerPodcast.com with the number one, and we're also on Twitter at OnePlayerPodcast. The intro music is copyright Angus, can be found at Gemendo.com. The transition music is copyright by Dan Elduce Pancaldi, whose page is at DanPancaldi.com. The One Player Podcast is protected under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Thanks for listening. Just ridiculous. Okay. Testing. Testing, testing. <laughs> Albert, apparently I was boring you at one point in time. He he was... Why do you say that? Um, Because I see that you posted a comment on BGG on someone finding your copy of Ogre. Oh. <laughs> You've been caught, no, sir. Busted. No... I I habitually hit the next button and then I saw that comment and it was just too funny. Okay, that's fine.